Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good morning. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Bill Schindler, the author of Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to, re- to Revolutionize Your Health. Um, Dr. Bill Schindler is an internationally known archaeologist, primitive technologist, and chef. He is also the man behind Eastern Shore Food Labs and Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Bill, uh, what did we say, two years ago at Polyface Farms. We got to run into each other, and I got to experience um, some of your food there and meet your wife. And I'm really excited to sit and talk with you today, Dr. Bill. So thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation as well. So this Polyface situation, this is like a, everybody rolls into this farm. I feel like I need like a so networking many people on Polyface. I mean, that's kind of what it is at this point. I mean, I feel like we, we, it's, it's uh, how many people show up to this thing? Yeah, because we just had uh, Tommy and Luke from Raw Milk and Deadlifts on the show. And I also saw them at Polyface. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure it was the same event. Um, I don't know. I just feel like when you're in the real food space, and I haven't been back in a year, I think. There's just people you run into on a regular yeah. basis. Um, and so, yeah, I'm super excited. So before we jump in, I really want to hear how you got interested in these topics and how you kind of landed to where you are today. So give us some insight. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I'll do the short version now, and I'm sure we can just expand on anything sure, that's, yeah. that's pertinent or relevant later on. So, so like so many people that are in this space, I... I struggled with so many things with my own health and my own weight for, for so many years. And finally, you know, n- no one of us has found any solution to anything, but at least started going in the right direction. And as soon as that happens, we want to obviously share it with the world. Mm-hmm. So my, my quick story is I, my entire life up until the past probably 15 years, I've had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. Uh, and it started as an, as an overweight kid who uh, just saw food as... Uh, something that made me ugly and made other kids make fun of me or made made me fat. You know, I knew I, I, I was addicted to food. I was addicted to carbs. I craved food. But every time I took a bite, I never looked at it the way that I look at it now as something that nourished me. I looked at it as something that was harming me in some way. Mm. And then <clears throat> I didn't actually, I started wrestling in high school. I didn't start wrestling because I was in high school, but I fell in love with it and just dove deep. And the, I was working out even as a freshman in high school three times a day. And because of that, a lot of the weight fell off and I looked differently, but I still was eating this incredibly horrible diet of this, you know, that we had in the 80s that we were told we should be eating. (laughs) And uh, food went from something that I was afraid of or I thought made me look or or feel a certain way to something I was scared of. You know, now it was something that uh, was just, you know, potentially stopping me from making weight. You know, the the relationship between food and wrestling is is a very, can be a very unhealthy one. Uh, then I wrestled for Ohio State uh, and actually the College of New Jersey, so uh, two incredible Division One and Division Three programs, and I was losing 21 pounds in a day and a half every single week to make weight. Uh, and again, this is, what food was to me was was not something that nourished me. And again, still battling with all these body image issues and and, and health issues. And you can imagine what happened as soon as I was no longer an athlete, all the weight just poured back on and, and exponentially. And I started suffering from all sorts of metabolic disease and restless leg syndrome, and I was sick all the time, and my digestive tract was a complete disaster. And this entire time I had tried, I had hired nutritionists, Ohio State had nutritionists for us. I was in a nutrition program at Ohio State for my first semester there. We had, I had doctors, I was following whatever 
uh, diet was in Muscle and Fitness magazine for some reason at the time because that was my source of information. None of it worked. And um, so th this was sort of my dietary path. And then I got married I, and I started having kids and I, I realized that this wasn't understanding nourishment, true nourishment with food and connecting to food was now more about more than just about me. It was about my wife and, and, and our growing family and, and, and nourishing our kids. So it became even more important to me. And I really knew I needed to figure this out. But the other sort of side piece that at the time ran parallel throughout my entire life, but now is uh, synergistic with all of this, is that I've always been interested in, in the past. My father and I, he, and he would have me outside all the time, hunting and fishing and trapping. We we're always looking for arrowheads, trying to, we had no idea what we were looking for. We knew we were looking for them. We actually together never found one. Um, since then, I've found millions, but but at that point, we had never found one. But we always looked, he instilled in me this this passion for the outdoors and connecting with, with nature and, and also connecting with the past. And I, because of that, I became an archeologist. I became a primitive technologist. I became a professor to teach all of these things. And it wasn't until I realized that there was a literally a light bulb moment that literally almost every single prehistoric technology ever invented for three and a half million years was focused on food, either mm. getting food or processing food or sharing food or redistributing food or storing food or whatever. Almost every single prehistoric technology has something to do with food. And knowing that our, our changing diets over millions of years impacted the way our bodies grew and our brains grew and eventually resulted in us as homo sapiens, then there, there was a link, a link between all these things that I was doing. And when I made that link, I realized that this was, this was the foundation. Finally, finally, things started to make sense. And I started to understand not only uh, the role that food should have in mine and my family's life, but how to use this information to best nourish ourselves and Anything that I've dealt with, I'm 50 years old now, anything I dealt with for the first 35 years of my life has, has been completely changed in the past 15. And I would say the past five years of my life have been absolutely the healthiest physically and emotionally from the entirety of the 50 years. Wow. So where were you getting this nutritional information when you were kind of realizing that everything you had been doing before was was frankly just like wrong or not serving you? Like where were you looking for information? It, it was absolutely in the past. So okay. um, one thing to understand too, I'm going to not interchangeably, but use the words archaeology and anthropology. Actually, let, let me just define three things very quickly. So um, anthropology, the way we look at it in this country is the study of humans, right. anything to do with humans. Um, so it could be how how humans move, how humans eat, how humans communicate, how humans play music, anything, it falls under that realm because it's, it's anthropologic. Um, archaeology in this country we view as a subfield of anthropology, so it's the study of humans obviously in the past. Um, the work that I've done in those two realms is, so the archaeology has been looking at ancestral diets and food processing technologies over millions of years. And, but we've also been able to supplement that, which has been really profound for me and my entire family with uh, work with indigenous and traditional groups that are living right now all over the world. So we've spent time in South America and Africa and Asia and all, all over living and working and, and cooking together and, and sharing food and, and, and approaches to food and culture with a whole bunch of incredibly amazing people and families and, and, and groups. So those two things together have been very powerful. But the part of archaeology that I was focused on for years and did a lot of my training with that I think provides a lot of this insight is a, is a subfield of archaeology called 
experimental archaeology. So you can imagine if you're digging uh, an archaeological site, things are thousands of years old, tens of thousands, millions of years old. What's left? You know, the residues of an activity in the past are, are very fragmented by the time we actually get to them. It could be a piece of a stone, a piece of a pot or whatever. And we have to then take that information as archaeologists and recreate what was happening at that time, at that place. And there's a lot of things we don't know, obviously, and pieces, gaps we have to fill in. So I was, um, most of my work for many years was focused on learning how to replicate those ancestral technologies, how to make stone tools, how to make primitive ceramics, how to brain tan deer skins, all those sorts of things, to then be able to look at an archaeological site and I understand how those tools were made, how they functioned, why people decided to eventually throw them away and became part of the archaeological mm -hmm. record. So all of those things together at the same time really melded well with um, my love for food, my love for cooking, when I realized that it all had to, really it all does it, some uh, ultimately have to do something with food. So the moment that I realized that, which I think was the, the original question you asked, uh, it, this is a simplified version of it, but it wants something like this. You can imagine the amount. I could give somebody a, if you want to be a master potter, right? I could give you a ball of clay the size of a basketball, and you can make it into a pot, and then make it wet again, and then make it into another pot. And practice your entire life with the same ball of clay. As long as you don't fire it and put it in a kiln or in a fire, you could, you know, a little bit of clay, you can become a master potter. A lot of practice, but a little bit of clay. Rocks are a different thing because it's a reductive process. So you start with a rock, the right kind of rock, you bang it, you break it, and then you need another rock. Um, and you literally, to become an expert at stone tool production, you need truckloads worth of rock and years worth of, of work. So I dedicated myself. I said, I'm going to spend a minimum of one hour every day practicing making stone tools. We have rocks everywhere. And the other thing with, with banging on the rocks is that uh, you, you release uh, microscopic particles of silica in the air every time you bang on them. So if you're doing it in a closed room, you can get uh, a lung disease called silicosis, which is the, it, the microscopic particles cut your lungs into scar tissue and you get very wow. sick and die. So you have to do it outside. So here I am with this, you know, dedicated to learn everything I can about stone tools. And I know it sounds weird, but bear with me because a lot of what we'll talk about later has something to do with this. And I'm in the garage every day, doors open, banging on rocks. I get home from work, I'm banging on rocks. And my wife finally comes outside one day and she says, listen, you've got to come in. Like, you've got to come in the house. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be, I'm almost done. I just got to sweep up. I'll be in this minute. She's like, no, no, you've got to, like, bring this, this passion, this, this, this stone tools, whatever. You've got to bring it in the house. You have a family and take that passion. And, you know, pretty much she said, why would you even be passionate about something if it's not going to impact your family at some mm -hmm. level? And she was 100% right. And... It kind of flooded in quickly. I'm like, yeah, you're 100% right. <laughs> but, but then I was like, what do I do? So it took a couple weeks, and it was literally one day in the shower that I'm sitting there thinking, how do I make these rocks? You know, I had my son out there and my daughter sometimes banging rocks, but that's not what she meant. She Like, take this and make it meaningful to our family. And I realized, it was in the shower one day that I realized what I started this off with, that almost every prehistoric technology has something to do with food. How can I take that link you know, understanding stone tool production or pots or whatever it is, cooking fire, whatever, and make it relevant to food, make it relevant to us. It's, hey, this is the foundation of the human diet. These, these technologies are what makes us different than any other animal on the planet. We need to process our, almost all of our food before we consume it. And that's where these technologies come in. And that, from that moment forward, 
All of my research is dedicated to that. It transformed my health. It transformed my family's health. It was the foundation of that book, and it's the foundation of our nonprofit, the Eastern Shore Food Lab, and also our restaurant, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. All of it came from that conversation. Wow. wow. I, I love uh, several things I want to point out real quick. One is that you're both looking at the past, and you have to kind of uh, put yourself in that situation and immerse yourself in that and imagine, like, kind of how things would have worked so that you can understand it because you have no one to tell you right verbatim hey this is what we this is what we did but then also you're confirming a lot of that stuff or maybe it's not even just confirming it but you're seeing parallels in modern um places where the cultural food tradition has not been either challenged or changed to the degree like we see in the states right like you're looking at indigenous groups you're looking at people who are eating what's around them what has been traditionally passed down to them and so you have a modern picture real life you can go cook and, and experience that with them today you also have the element where you're like looking and it's like a mystery you're kind of unfolding as you're learning more about how these different tools are manufactured or how people would have lived their lives or whatever and then um, both of those just come together to create this full picture, right? Because the, the argument is always, what is biologically appropriate for a human? And if you go online and you're going to find a million reasons why eating vegan is biologically appropriate, none of those I agree with, but you're going to find them. Mm-hmm. You're going to find a million reasons why you should never touch wheat. Again, some people go that route. I don't go that route. I enjoy sourdough. Um, you can find a million reasons or a million data points to back any kind of point at this point because we can skew data, we can look here, we can mm-hmm. cherry pick, we can look at the blue zones, da 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 da. Um, but at the end of the day, I was one thing that you always say is not like what should I eat, but how should I eat? Mm-hmm. And this is critical. And then I love that your wife kind of gave you that subtle maybe it wasn't subtle. It wasn't that, subtle. It wasn't subtle. <laughs> gave you that challenge. How can you take your passion, something you're clearly working day in and day out, pounding these rocks, how can you make it serve your family? Mm. And that changed the trajectory of your whole life because then you wrote a book and you opened up these other amazing facilities. And I think that that's just so, so cool. I I love that. I'm I'm stuck on the... So I have an interesting background because I also wrestled, which we talked about kind of before we jumped on. And and, and I also went to culinary school. And so like hearing you say something along the lines of, man, the way that the world or like humans have innovated from year after year after year from, you know, thousands of years ago to now is like, you know, based on food innovation mm-hmm. is fascinating to me. I've always looked at like, I'm thinking back to like the, the ages. I don't know. I'm not, okay. But like, I'm thinking of like stone age and pre, like prehistoric age or whatever other ages, like right. The steel age. Are the, are the, is this how this goes? Well, it depends on how you divide it, but typically it would be stone age, bronze age and iron age. Thank you. Yeah. Yep, that's what I was thinking of. And <laughs> I always saw those quote, quote unquote ages as like from like a military sense. Right. And my initial thought was like, we're always innovating things for like battle. Right. Mm-hmm. But obviously you have to eat before you have to, I mean like eating is, is, is almost like defending yourself from like a very, like the very bottom of the security scale, if you mm-hmm. will, right? And it's it almost seems like, I don't know, in your research, was it almost like it started with these innovations in technology and stone or whatever else it started with food? And then did we utilize those kind of like 
ideas to cross over into war? Like, what, how, how did that work? You know, you just, everything you just said is so profound and, and amazing. We could spend the next, literally the next hour and a half talk answering just the parts that you said. But I'll, <laughs> I'll give it, because they, they, they were great. And I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to address it real quick. A couple things I think we need to, to realize before we dive into that. One is we typically look at, uh, you know, Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age as, you know, increasing levels of not only technology but uh, usefulness and you know we're getting smarter we're getting better so we're going through these different ages um there's, there's a word for that it's called teleological this sort of planned you know existence and, and it wasn't in any form and, and some of uh, to date the sharpest physical edge that humans have ever created is from the edge of a rock, from the edge of obsidian. It's 300 to 500 times sharper than a surgical scalpel. In fact, wow. all of our kids were delivered into this world with the scalpels that I made with, with obsidian. Um, and there's some really cool examples of um, groups that were, you know, all of their technology was based around stone. And then Bronze Age technology comes into a particular group. They, everybody wants the new, you know, the novel, the new iPhone kind of thing. So they're all like trying to turn over and, 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 and you know, all the knives are now bronze and all this. Mm-hmm. And then we see it revert back to stone. They're like, no, no, stone was better than this, you know, for a little while, right? And then the same kind of thing sometimes with iron as that technology. So it goes back and forth. But we still use stone tool technology for certain things still today. Like some, the scalpel edge is so sharp on obsidian that there's certain eye surgeries and plastic surgeries that are performed with it because it's so sharp, it literally like, divides the cells. It, wow. You know, the scarring tissue is so, is so much less. It's amazing. But um, what you said about the warfare piece of this is, is really important. Uh, one thing that I learned, you know, I did that show for National Geographic, uh, The Great Human Race, and one of the things that I kept battling with, with the, uh, the showrunner, was National Geographic, when they, they put that show together, they wanted to jump on the back of um, the other survival shows that were happening at the time. So this is what, about seven years ago or so. And they wanted to see survival. Mm. And I told them the story that we were trying to tell was much more than survival. It wasn't about survival. It was about subsistence. It was about thriving. And the example, and, I, and you might have heard, if this was... Uh, I was a polyface twice to present, and I don't know if I said this at the one you read or not, mm-hmm. but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's very important to this. Right before I got asked to do the show for National Geographic, I was teaching some, you know, a bunch of students at the college, uh, and one in one of the classes it was a primitive technology class. So they're making stone tools and they're making primitive fires and all this. And it was when Naked and Afraid was mm-hmm. a big show. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, and the students kept bugging me to be on Naked and Afraid. <laughs> And I really didn't want to be on Naked and Afraid at all for a lot of reasons. But, uh, but I didn't want to tell the students that I didn't want to be on Naked and Afraid. So I said, you know, I'm thinking to myself, all I need to do is go to my wife and say, hey, Christina, can I be on Naked and Afraid? She's going to say, oh, hell no. And then I'm like, okay, well, then I can tell the students that my, I would love to, but my wife won't let me. So I sat her down one day, and I remember, I remember this distinctly. We were, in the, we were in the bedroom, and I sat her down on the kind of chair-like thing at the end of her bed and I said hey Christine I got a really big question for you she's like what I said you know the students really want me to be a naked and afraid what do you think and I again I was expecting this oh no way kind of thing and she sat there and thought about it for a minute I'm thinking to myself why is she even thinking about this and she looked up she goes yeah that'd be okay oh my god and I'm like that'd be okay what do you mean that'd be okay like you, you've seen the show they take a man and a woman that don't know each other and they're naked in the woods for 28 days and she's like yeah i've seen the show and she says yes yeah, sometimes at the beginning of each show somebody you can tell has that little twinkle in their eye and is thinking about this 
being more than just and uh, <laughs> but after one or two days of not eating any food at all and they're covered in mosquito bites and poison ivy and sunburn and they got diarrhea the last thing on their mind is having sex so it's probably the safest place you could be and i'm like you're absolutely it was true it was another one of these big light bulb moments for me that's so funny a story of our ancestral past is not of survival species that are just on the edge of survival are just making it through and not only were we as a species and our ancestors making it through but we were crushing it we we were able to increase our nutritional input and the bioavailability and the safety of all the food that was coming into us and the diversity of the food that was coming into our bodies so well that not only did we survive not only did our populations increase but our brains the most expensive nutritionally expensive organ in our bodies exponentially grew and our bodies grew like the story of the you know, did people starve to death in the past absolutely were people malnourished in the past absolutely but the overarching theme that we should have in our heads when we think about the past three and a half million years is that our ancestors were crushing it and, mm -hmm. and they weren't doing it because their nails got bigger or their muscles got stronger or they were able to fly they were doing it because they were creating technologies that allowed them to uh, access increasingly diverse resources from the environment and then do things to those foods to overcome our own physical limitations in our digestive tract and put into our mouths already processed incredibly nutrient dense and bioavailable safe food and that's you know that's the story so so that to directly go to answer your question the technologies that were coming into those cultural systems allowed that to happen and our bodies grew and our brains grew in response to this incredible nutrition well not in response to it supported by that incredible nutrition that, but what we see as far as the warfare thing, which is really cool, um, is that from did people get murdered and killed and was there violence in the past? Absolutely. But there's no evidence anywhere in the world for organized warfare until agriculture. Wow. And so what we, what we consider is what we think about in most cases is these were egalitarian societies where people had very equal access to resources, very equal responsibilities. There were some different, there was no differences based on things like social class or that, but there were differences. Men might have done some things different than women and children might do something different than an elderly person. But those were, you know, nobody really had a, an established status that oversaw everybody else. But and, and part of that reason is because you're consistently going out and getting resources. Nobody has the opportunity to accumulate mass wealth or mass power. Um, people might have, you might have looked up to somebody because they were a great hunter or they were a great speaker or they're, you know, uh, charismatic, but nobody had control over anyone. When you start, you know, if you look at all the agriculture around the world, it always starts and it's always based on annual grasses. So whether it's rice in Southeast Asia or wheat and barley in the you know, Fertile Crescent or maize in the, in the New World, uh, wherever you are, these are annual grasses. And the reason that they're annual grasses is because they store really, really well. Mm -hmm. So you plant them, you harvest them in excess, you, br you, you bring them all in, and then you can store them. And one or just a few people have control of the food of the entire population, mm -hmm. right? That, that annual grass, and, and the crazy thing is, when you look at diets in the past, we're looking at um, you know dozens of animals and hundreds of different plants that are in a, 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 you know, your diet in a given year. 
And then when we change agriculture, it's all focused on one or two crops, like literally one or two, almost overnight, one or two crops. And then all of your food is now based on this, you know, everything that you eat in the year, the majority, the staples of what you eat in the year is all coming from this stored and protected and resource base. So what's crazy is, you know, if it was, you know, we look at a hunter gather group, maybe an extended family unit, 20 people, something, whatever, uh, you know, we're living within a given area of an environment that has a carrying capacity that can support us. So we're out there, we're eating dozens of animals, hundreds of plants, and it's all obviously very seasonal and very, very local. And the opportunity for something to fail in that system is very low. Like if for some reason something happens, there's a drought or there's a whatever. First of all, wild plants and animals are more resilient than domesticated ones. But, you know, if, if that one plant you don't have access to, well, you have the other 299. Mm. So it's not a very big deal. And if you are forced to move, you're moving 20 people somewhere mm. else into an area that's hopefully just as lush and as, as productive as the one you came from. When you start taking a piece of land and uh, let, let's say, I don't know, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's say five square miles could support 20 people as hunter-gatherers with wild resources. If you take and start, you know, tearing down a bunch of those trees and planting fields, and now you're planting just wheat, and wheat is the staple food for all these people, and you're, and you're, you're mass producing, and this is even mass produced thousands of years ago, you know, that wheat, and feeding all these people on wheat, then now that carrying capacity of, um, of five square miles, maybe 60 people, right? And then you're, you're, you're really intensively figuring out how to do that and maximizing it, maybe genetically modifying some of the things, maybe using, using uh, horses now to draw plows, whatever it is. Now that carrying capacity of that five square miles is say 100 people. Now a drought happens, or now uh, an insect infestation comes in and, and destroys your crops. You're not talking about 20 people that are hungry. You're talking about 100 people that are hungry in a five square mile radius. You can't take that 100, you know, those 100 people and stick them in a hunter-gatherer situation, even if they had the knowledge to do it, because there's no five square miles anywhere in the world that could support all those people. So uh, your resource base becomes incredibly fragile as soon as you start agriculture, and you start with organized warfare because... A, you have control over one primary food resource that's redistributed throughout the entire year. So everybody's reliant on a small group of people. And there's a lot of control when you control somebody's food system like that. And then when uh, the crops fail, and they will at some level, you can't go, you're talking about a year's worth of food for a population that you, you don't have another year to get it. You go get it from somebody else. And that's where you start bringing armies and you know, that sort of thing. This idea of being in control of the food and having influence, and, and it's really, it feels like it's almost, it's leaning into humans' desire to be like secure, right? Comfort. Mm -hmm. People want to be comfortable. They want to be secure. I mean, I was even thinking about it. Like if I'm going to bed at night and like my toes poke out from the side of the sheet, I'm like, I got to get, I got to get those toes in, right? Because like the monster's going to come bite them off or something. But, you know, when you think about the security of what am I going to eat? and you start creating innovations that make food more convenient, therein lies, I think, what we're talking about, right? We're storing food. We found ways to, to keep food longer. It, it eliminates this need for the hunter-gatherer mindset. People can come together and live in a five-square-mile plot like you're talking about. And then, like you said, like a drought happens, and boom, you're, you're, you're in a situation where um, you you, you got to figure out what we're gonna do next. Are we gonna, we're gonna go to war. We're gonna find someone else's food. We're gonna we gotta go take someone else's land. I mean, is that is that kind of the thought? 
Absolutely, but it's the the problem is, and, and it's happening to us even more now than it did then uh, to the people that it's an appearance of food security. Mm. And you can, the other thing that happens, you know, so from three and a half million years up until the agriculture revolution, most of the technology surrounding food did one, if not all three of the following three things, made food safe, made food nutrient dense and made food bioavailable, the nutrients in it bioavailable. And it, it did an increasingly good job at this. When we hit the agricultural revolution, there, were there still technologies that did that? Absolutely. But the majority of humans focus on the food system was on agriculture. Mm. And when you do that, obviously all, all of this changes at a lot of levels. And we see a reduction in food safety and nutrient density and bioavailability from 12,000 years ago up until now, it's just increasingly getting worse in most cases, not all, but in most. But to me, one of the most problematic things that really happened at the agricultural revolution, and then even more so at the industrial revolution in the 1700s, and, we, and we're really um, reaping the negative effects of it now, is that at every one of these stages, we're getting more, most of the population is getting more disconnected from their food. So one of the, when I learned about agriculture in eighth grade, you know, in the Fertile Crescent, it's like, oh my gosh, agriculture was so amazing because now you could free, you know, some people could work really hard to feed the masses, but the rest of the people are freed up to like explore other things, like become poets and artists and politicians and all mm-hmm. these things. And, and now there's wonderful things about that, except maybe the politician part. There's wonderful <laughs> things uh, about that. And that is really the essence of, of a lot of humanity is, are, are the arts for sure. But it comes at a cost because those members of the population have disconnected themselves from the food system. And in addition to now not being able to, to watch it and, 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 and make sure that it's happening at the, in the right way, they can then be very much controlled. Uh, and wow. the information delivered it in, in whatever way to manipulate them. Then it happens even worse. So when we become uh, agricultural revolution, we go from hunter-gatherers to food producers. And we take a lot of people out of the food system uh, because of that. And then when we go to the Industrial Revolution in the, in the 1700s, we go from, most of us go from food producers to food consumers, right? Mm-hmm. We're just buying it. And we have people, you know, small number of people that are working incredibly hard to feed the rest of the uh, population. And, and that's where we are now, that most of us are food consumers. And we don't, we not only aren't we planting our own food, we don't know our farmers. We don't know our abattoirs. We don't know our butchers. We don't know the people shipping the food. We don't know anybody in that food system except for the person that we hand the $10 bill to at the, at the register at the grocery store. And that's why I'm convinced we can be so easily manipulated because we are generations away from knowing what, re- not all of us certainly, but we are so far removed from any growing of food, hunting of food, processing of food, cooking of food that now we have to listen to Instagram to understand how and what we should be eating. Mm, so with, what, which is so frustrating, right? Because Instagram will give you a million different answers. Like you said earlier. with the Yeah. And it's like, first of all, I'm a whole wholeheartedly, I wholeheartedly believe in the fact that what works for me might not work for someone else. Like there is an aspect of bio-individuality that is real. There's also an aspect of what we are, like just from a genetic standpoint, right? What did my ancestors eat versus maybe Joey's or versus maybe someone from a completely different part of the world? That's going to change how maybe you can digest things or even your preference probably. But also like completely disconnecting us from where our food comes from. I think of like the Victorian age where all of a sudden people are now freed up. You're right. They have time. They, mm. they now can elaborate 
and decorate their houses in a certain manner like it was very much like a time of like a lot of stuff packed Mm -hmm. in like if you look at just like decor wise or even like now I have time to sit and and ponder thoughts or whatever and it's like why did we as a society or we as human beings ever feel like food is not this sacred thing that we want to be involved in like why is it so easily like oh yeah food our our sustenance our pinnacle of survival nah someone else can handle that like i'm gonna go look at the curtains or something it's just it's weird to me that like it's lost its sacredness maybe and maybe this is more of a modern thing than not but it just I, it puzzles me so with this technology that's constantly developing right we and it's it's, it's been going on for forever right mm-hmm. and you know where's the line i remember asking you know will this it was like Where's the line in technology? Mm-hmm. Like at what point have we gone across the line? And, you know, because for, for a number of years, for more years than it hasn't been, right? Technology has been a good thing for us, right? Yeah. In, the, in the food world. But curious, Bill, what your thoughts are on, on, the, on the tech side. So it, it, I'll tell you, I love talking about these light bulb moments that were trans, so transformative for me because they're easy ways, I think, to have, not sound bites, but little things that um, can, can hopefully make sense to somebody listening to this. So another sort of... Um, light bulb moment for me uh, came a few years after when Christina uh, approached me in the garage and I was banging on rocks. Um, food has always been central to all of my teaching, whether I'm teaching an, an, an archaeology class or a modern food anthropology class, it's always been central. And this one particular semester, you know, we typically I taught three classes each semester at Washington College. So this one semester, I had a student that was in two of my classes. And they were both really focused on food. And one was an archaeology class, so we were talking about food in the past. And the other one was more of a modern anthropological thing and talked a lot about the modern food system. And she came up to me about halfway through the semester. And she said, listen, Professor Schindler, I got a question. Like, I don't understand. I said, what? She said, I'm in both of your classes, and you say food processing all the time. But in the archaeology prehistoric class, when you say food processing, you, your eyes light up and you're all excited and you, you, know, you, you get all animated. But when you say food processing in the modern class, it looks like somebody ran over your dog. Like, mm. I, like where, what's the difference? You know, where do you draw the line? When is it good? When is it bad? And this is really, I think, kind of, kind of question that, that you're asking me. And I didn't have it. I said, I know there's a difference, but I don't know what that difference is yet. Mm. Let me think about it. And it's like one of those words that you use all the time, but you just don't, you know, don't actually know the definition. Processed of foods, right? Processed yeah. foods, but processed foods. When ninety-nine percent of the people today say it, it's a negative thing. Yeah. And for ninety-nine percent of the food processing today, it is a negative thing. So what I landed on is this, and this is, and I, I keep repeating this a lot. Um, when food processing increases the safety of our food, the nutrient density of our food, and/or the bioavailability of our food. Um, then it's a very good thing. Hmm. And almost all of our prehistoric technologies did that. When it compromises any one of those things, usually it's a negative thing. And and most of the food processing today is for solely for profit, right? You're Mm -hmm. you're increasing shelf life by months, or you're making sure that the, 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 the tomatoes aren't getting bruised because they're getting shipped around the world and then they're hit with gas or whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're doing it for somebody else to make money. Somebody else making money at their job isn't necessarily a bad thing. Somebody else making money on, at the expense of our own health and at the expense of safety, nutrient density, or bio, and or bioavailability is an incredibly, incredibly bad thing. So that's really where I draw the line. And one thing I would love everybody to, to recognize, and I mentioned, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is 
We literally have domesticated ourselves. Human mm -hmm. beings are the first, I'm convinced, are the first domesticated species in the world. Yeah. And my definition of, of domestication is you take a, a wild animal and put it in a culturally um, controlled environment, whether or not you're taking a plant and watering it or sunlight or feed, you know, whatever you're doing to it, or taking an animal and protecting it or putting it in a pen and feeding it or maybe breeding it in a certain way, but you're putting it in an environment that humans control and over time, they genetically change because they've been in that environment long enough. And, and in many cases, they genetically change to the point that they can't survive then outside of that cultural environment. When we made our first stone tool three and a half million years ago, and I know this is a stretch for some people to even consider time that deep, but and, and, and the importance of banging two rocks together. But when we started banging rocks and creating sharp edges, edges that were sharper and more durable than anything we have on our body, including our teeth and our nails, and now because of that technology can access, you know, uh, incredibly nutrient dense foods like, um, like meat, right? We're butchering for the first time. And then we create fire and we're cooking for the first time. Because of those very simple but powerful technologies, we're accessing nutrients that we otherwise wouldn't have had available to us. Mm -hmm. And because of that, our bodies grow and our brains grow and our nutrient, you know, and as our bodies and brains grow, our, the, the nutritional needs that we require to fuel ourselves and to stay healthy are increasing as well. And now we're at a point that I don't care if, and I don't care if you're Bear grills and know every wild plant that you can, uh, you, you can harvest and eat and, and, and the behavior patterns of all animals. Any of us, if you stripped any modern human down and stuck us in the middle of the woods and said, you can't make any technologies, you just have to use your fingernails and your teeth and your eyes and your muscles and whatever, we would all die. We mm. cannot nourish ourselves properly. And if you look at any of these survival shows, even Naked and Afraid, the first thing that they do is they make something. Like they have to make something to overcome our own physical limitations. Um, so that's incredibly important to understand that we need, in almost all cases, we need to do something to our food before it goes into our mouths. And that's, I, and that's the basis, I think, for everything that we do now. Do I you, love that. Do you already know what I'm going to say? I think you're going to jump into sourdough or something. Uh, no. Or milk, so, maybe? Milk. Okay, so it, sourdough is definitely a part of Guess this, right? Guess two. I was on two, two guesses. This is this. what we say in like one of the first pages of our children's nutrition curriculum. We don't disparage. This, these were actually, I think, Sally Fallon's words when she was like editing the book. We don't disparage processed foods because some f processing is beneficial. For example, mm -hmm. making cheese is beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, you can culture dairy. It's the kind of, same kind of thing, but in a different way. You can make sourdough bread. That's a process, right? So when people like to, they, they think it's like an aha, I gotcha moment when they're like, haha, processing is like, you know, there's good time. There's good things of processing. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't like talk about processed foods as, as always being bad there's a new term people like to say ultra processed mm. which i think better categorizes kind of like the packaged i like to say packaged foods in the yeah. store because most of the time but the thing i like about what you said is that it has to not only make food safer but also increase its uh, nutrient density and its bioavailability and a lot of people will hear that maybe not a lot of the homegrown community will hear that and think this but some outside people will think oh like pasteurization we made food safer but mm. to that i immediately am like listen you gotta have all three 
because pasteurization does the opposite of making it bioavailable and it absolutely does not increase nutrient density it actually does the opposite so then you have to ask yourself well then why did we start pasteurizing why was our milk all of a sudden deemed unsafe during this like crazy industrial revolution and then you have to go back to history which makes people feel really uncomfortable because it challenges every single narrative they've been told about food in the united states modern like today and the same thing, like we pasteurize everything. We pasteurize our freaking orange juice, people. Mm-hmm. Like anything that's like a cold pressed juice has to have the FDA la- label of like this may contain harmful bacteria because it's not pasteurized. Mm-hmm. And I just think that having those three is really critical because you can you can manipulate it in a way to make modern processing seem like it's a good thing. Oh, mm-hmm. we got to increase the shelf life of this. We get to make our food way be far more accessible to a bunch of people. That's great. But like at some point, feeding a bunch of people, feeding the masses through like a couple concentrated sources is not sustainable and it's definitely not leading to nutrient density, which is why I always get frustrated when it tends to happen in the plant-based vegan dialogue a lot when they want to start on these big things. How do we feed the world, right? How do we feed the world? How do we do this? And from what you were saying earlier, listen, we were never meant to individuals to feed the world. Mm. That is not how we start with it. That's a brand new thing. It's a brand new thing. We should be talking about how to feed our community. I'm sorry, but personally, I want to challenge anyone who's like, how do we feed the world? I need to go vegan. No. How do you feed your family? Start with your family. How do you feed your family? Can you feed them? in a biologically appropriate way without manipulating technology. I, I saw you on Instagram talking about this. The only way you can eat a modern vegan diet and get check all your boxes is by almost like overusing technology, right? Because you have to grow plants indoors or you have to grow them year round in controlled environments. It's not something that would have existed without some of this stuff. And so if you really want to dial it in, how do you feed your family? and not take advantage of some of these technologies. You just, do you see what I'm saying? I do. I'm curious though, just to even jump into that a little bit. What about like a tropical environment? Like wouldn't there theoretically be available? I mean, not not that it's, I mean, okay. I play, maybe, maybe it's a devil's advocate here, but like a winter, right? For a vegan would be tough. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that might look different. That might be like fish and mangoes year round. I don't know. Totally. And, and, and real quick with that, the, Every place on earth has some level of seasonality, but not the way we obviously experience it. Sometimes there's like winter, summer sort of things, but in other parts of the world, um, you have like wet and dry seasons, okay. right? So, but there, there's, but there is that variability, certainly. Uh, the problem is, uh, and this is a vegetarian uh, or vegan sort of uh, comment. First off, I do want to say this, and, I, and it's not very popular, but I truly believe this. Most people, I completely applaud the reason why most people become vegan. Mm. Like oh, they, they're, yeah. they're actually thinking about their food, where it comes from, the ethics behind it, the sustainability, more yeah. than most people think about, more than many people think about their food. And I would love to sit down and have a conversation with any open-minded vegan that, because <laughs> I love the, the way that, you know, I love why they're approaching mm-hmm. what yes. they're doing. I don't agree with the way they're doing it but yeah. I, I but but i agree with thinking about food and 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 the world in those terms or at least from those perspectives and trying to change the world but the problem is we have outgrown the ability to fuel our bodies and nourish our bodies solely on on plant resources and if we were doing it on plant resources um, the other thing that comes in with all these plants is a ton of toxins. Mm-hmm. So we have seasonality issues that we have to overcome. 
uh, we have toxic issues, toxin issues that we have to overcome. And some of them we can, right? There's a lot of ways to process vegetables, but there's some toxins like oxalates you just can't get rid of. And if you're going to, and unfortunately, most of what the superfood vegan foods are, are loaded with oxalates. And yeah. if you need to eat massive amounts of almonds to try to get your protein in, then you're going to end up with a lot of other issues. And even with all that, you still have to ship this food in all, all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's just, it doesn't make sense. And there's been no, up until modern times, um, there has never been an example in the archaeological record of any group choosing to be vegan. Mm, that's period. huge. It, the other way, there's a lot of groups that ended up going completely almost animal-based and some all animal-based, but nobody has, has consciously chosen to do that. The only times where we see a huge influx of, of plant-based foods into a diet is because they, you know, the group has been pushed to the margins and they don't have access to game or, so, or something like that. So but can I just... Oh, so go ahead. I was just going to ask, what do you say to people when they want to talk about the blue zones as a defense to, like, mostly plant-based? Because I, I know there's a lot of flaws with some of that research, but, like, what is your response? The... You know, it's very funny. We just booked... We're, 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 one of the things that has been the cornerstone of everything that we do is is, is the research and working with, with groups. And COVID, a lot of things have put a wrench into that in the last few years. But we finally have our first research trip booked. Um, we're going to Sardinia in June. <gasps> no way. So excited. So excited. That's amazing. Um, for a couple of different things that we're going to uh, work with people, uh, traditional uh, groups with. But... Sardinia and the area in Sardinia we're going to be in is where a lot of the, the blue zone research took place for Sardinia. And if you look at and, and I know for sure, the reason we're going to this place in, in Sardinia is because of the, the animal. Well, two reasons, but one of the reasons is because of the animal focus and complete nose to tail focus mm. of animals here in, in this region. They, they still have the, the oldest form of cheese making practice. Um, it's called Caio de Cabreto, which you take literally a unweaned goat. You know what this, how, how they do this? No. Take an unweaned goat. Do you make, you make cheese? I haven't made my own cheese, no. Uh uh. We we get some local made cheese from our local farm, but I have not. Okay, the, that. the the quick background everybody needs to know, and this is thirty seconds, I promise we're worth it, is to make cheese you need to do two things in almost all cheeses, you need to do two things to milk. One is get it fermenting and mm -hmm. if it's raw, high quality milk, it's already in the process of fermenting. And two, you have to coagulate it by adding an enzyme, a protease enzyme called rennet, which creates the curds, you separate curds and whey and go through the process. The rennet naturally exists in the stomach of, of, of unweaned mammals. Mm -hmm. A version of it exists even in, in infant humans before they're weaned. But uh, so what you do with, um, with this goat or sometimes the lamb, you take the goat, you have it unweaned and you have it uh, drink from its mother, fills its stomach, and then they harvest the goat with the stomach full of milk and literally hang it up. That's it. And now they eat the rest of the goat, obviously, but they take that stomach and hang it up. The rennet is already there coagulating the milk. It's already in the process of fermenting. And I don't know how long. Uh, in fact, I have. I forgot I even have it. This is this is what it, this is now. This is like 10 years old, but oh this gosh. is the kind of stomach. thing that it looks like. It's the stomach. And and I have it for demonstration for our cheese making class. But if I had got this earlier, you would open it up and eat, eat the stuff on, on the inside. They're making the cheese inside of the freshly I mean, harvested. It, it's baby almost goat. like uh, it's almost like using intestines for sausage, right? Right. It's, oh yeah, yeah. totally. It's I mean, except you're not you're cleaning out the intestines first and then stuffing them. 
You're not making sausage from the digestive. I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean, I've, but I've it's very similar. Harvested intestines for that purpose hey, myself. You know, we could. I could guess. you make sausage out of like deer intestines? Absolutely. I guess so. I'm sure. Okay. Done it. Have you? you oh, absolutely. The only yeah. problem with deer, they're kind of small. They're like most of the intestines are like the size slim of a, a, a slim jim. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're a little bit of a pain, but yeah, we've we've done it before. Does it have a nice snap to it? Oh yeah. Well, I mean. All natural casing should, right? Well, I mean, I think that comes down to like the, the, the key, like the, the, eight, drying, the Yeah, as, the as you create the sausage itself. Yeah. That's next level that you're making sausage out of deer intestine, which I guess it makes sense because we throw, so you probably, yeah, when you field dress, you leave that in the field. Mm-hmm. But you probably, Bill, are taking that with you. We always take now, always take the... Um, the call fat, you know, the call fat, the uh-huh. mesentery, the, the finger fat stuff, the, yep. all the organs are sitting. We always take that. That's mm. amazing. We always take the kidneys. We always take the liver. We always take the heart. Um, sometimes we take the stomach because the stomach is a nice casing as well for, for different kinds of, of cooking applications. I have taken the intestines and we've cleaned them out. And the quick version of it is squeeze out everything that's in there. Remember, it is an herbivore's intestines it's not a carnivore's intestine so even the stuff you're squeezing out there are groups that might even eat that so it's not nasty wow Um, get rid of it and then you cut a length of it um and if you turn on your faucet and just kind of medium and you start to turn the intestines inside out and let the water catch it the water will run through and turn them completely inside out like like you're taking a sock off your off your leg yeah and now they're inside out and there's a there's a uh, kind of a mucous membrane. It's important. I mean, it's just, it's it's that mucous membrane that when it gets destroyed in our own intestines, we start to have issues. Uh-huh. But there's kind of a mucous membrane that you scrape off real quick with like the back of a knife and then turn it right side out and then soak it in a little bit of water and vinegar or water and lemon juice and you're, you're good to go. Easy peasy. Are you up for the task? I mean, <laughs> I'll bring it home. We'll bring it home. We'll make me do it. I'll bring it home for you. You know what? I've I've seen, you know, squirrel intestines spill out on our counter before. That Uh would be a tiny sausage. That would not be worth it. You're not getting much out of it. Okay. I don't even remember where we were. But but to answer your question real quick, the sorry the blue zone things, we we it has to do more with how it was documented and how it was reported than the reality of what was there. The the animal consumption was not only larger than reported but the entirety of the animals which is not only nourishing but it, it's it's beautiful the way that mm-hmm. it the way that it happens mm. so i guess i guess what we're saying with that because i feel like i hear about this all the time is that i mean you, you, i see documentaries youtube videos reels all this stuff about blue zones and how people have been living primarily plant-based or exclusively yeah right, for you know thousands I mean, forever right and and so what we're kind of identifying is that that might not be true. It's the data. I watched I watched a debate between Mr. Will Harris, one of his scientist buddies, I forget his name, I apologize. Um, Ellen Fisher hosted this on her podcast. She's a very like large kind of vegan advocate. And then they had another kind of uh, they call I didn't even know it was called veganic gardening or veganic farming i don't understand um someone in the vegan world right and they were debating and it was so interesting that every single debate that came from will harris and his partner was based on this is what i've done in my land with my animals this is what i've physically seen and these are the results and the outcomes and every single 
counterpoint was in this study i have seen such and such mm. reported and I, at, at one point the guy the the associate to, to will harris was like listen i'm only reporting on like the small regenerative ranches and farms that i've literally been to and seen i'm just sharing my experience yeah. and you know i understand and respect the guys that you're citing but they're not in agriculture they're 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 like in the statistics and they're formulating these like would be ideal kind of scenarios in their heads but like at the end of the day i'm like you can twist any data you want and that's kind of what i feel like happened with the blue zones is we can cherry pick and twist and yeah you can say well the so-and-so didn't cherry pick here and there um at the end of the day i'm like i would rather look and and experience and see from my own eyes and then trust that versus all of these kind of grandiose ideas that are based on reductus reductus I, I'm saying that word wrong. Tiny little fragments of reality, you know, mm-hmm. and and so it's 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 the exact same thing. I feel mm-hmm. like that's exactly what happened with the blue zone. So I'm fascinated that you're gonna. I hope you document that and oh, and fully share document. That. We, there's a lot of different. I mean, that is one small piece of a lot of different research that we're doing. But I, I just wanted that. to give that as an example. That's happening in the blue zone. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's it. And then Literally. they take the rest of the goat. They make something called the sutratelia. I think. All of the so the other cool thing is we're talking about the intestines. If you're talking about an unweaned animal, what's going through the intestines is completely different than what's happening when they're weaned and they're eating grasses or sticks or whatever. So they act, they they take the intestines and don't even clean them out. They're filled with milk, right? Mm. So fermented milk. They take the intestines and all the guts and they wrap them around these sticks and do kind of this kebab-like thing. It's it's amazing, and they eat the entirety of it. We were down and I was doing potato research in uh, Bolivia and Peru. And we were in the mountains of the Andes and we were eating guinea pig. And I, other than the teeth and the claws, there was not a part of that guinea pig and the hair. There was not a part of it that wasn't consumed. All the organs, all the guts, all the skin, all the bones. It was incredible the way the guinea pigs were. were. Not, not that that area was a blue zone, but. How did you consume the bones? Are they grinding it? Yeah, so they were, um, how did we, we, we singed singed the hair off no we, we poached it and pulled the hair off and then i have a really good video on it i should post it um and then the entire thing was cooked whole wow like a fish and, like a fish but skin it was kind of like a pig where you take the skin the hair off but the skin's still on it and then it was all literally crushed together into a the bones too into a salsa like paste like thing that you then ate and and it was amazing well i'm sorry we ate some of the meat separately and then the rest of it was all crushed together and all of it was consumed so the blood the marrow all the guts all the skin all of it was consumed except for the claws the teeth and the um and the hair that's wild and i i'm gonna bet some people listening are like that's a little too too much for me i can't do the whole guinea pig (laughs) can i tell you that guinea pig was delicious i believe you i and i love that you're like i don't sense any fear or hesitation for with you around trying new foods i just feel like you you dive in and you're like i remember even when we were talking at polyface i was saying that um you were like you have to keep the kidneys of the deer because i think we're just keeping the heart and the liver for Mm -hmm. now and uh, you were you were explaining like how you use every single portion of the deer, which now I, I know it also includes the intestines from time to time. And um, I just really appreciate that. I do kind of want, as Joey mentioned before, I want to dive into sourdough because sure. wheat is one of those things where, again, people 
I, I respect either way. Like I respect if you're like, hey, I, I don't consume wheat and that's not my thing. But I also respect if people are like, hey, I want a long fermented and treat it right. Um, talk to us about your philosophy around sourdough, kind of how you view consumption of wheat or even just various grains from a um, from your perspective. I'm really interested to hear. So the first thing I think is very important is my whole approach to nourishment. And this comes from not only myself, but also for trying to nourish my family, like obviously you, you guys are, um, is I've gone from that strict to nourish myself, I need to get all my biological requirements of, of whatever I needed, which is important. But for humans, it's so much more because almost everything we do as humans at some level is is focused on food or built around food, traditions, religion, everything, right? So in order to be fully nourished in my mind now, it is that combination of meeting or exceeding our biological requirements and also our emotional and cultural requirements as well. So what does it mean to be fully nourished as a human? It means all of those things together, not only what you're eating, but how you're eating it in terms of we talked about how it's been processed, who you're eating it with, what is the conditions, what are the settings, you know, am I happy? Is, is, this, is this meeting my expectations of what a meal should be like, whether it's a religious one or a traditional, whatever it is. Like, you can't just do one of those things. To be fully nourished, you have to have all of them. And that's where I think bread comes in because there is no biological requirement for grains, period. And I would never tell somebody who's not eating bread Oh, you need to start eating bread if you want to be healthy. Like, that's not a thing. But most, unfortunately, most of the, the, the keto conversations or the carnivore conversations or, or the low-carb conversations are, stop there. Mm -hmm. but, the but the reality is many people eat bread. Like, mm -hmm. our family eats bread. So at that point, it's, okay, how, how, what is the safest way to consume bread? If you're going to consume bread, what, what can you do to it? Now, we have to remember... Seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes are all babies of the plants. And, you know, we know that plants put a lot of effort into creating toxins to, in order to reproduce viable offspring. Just like, you know, every, every species on the planet needs to produce viable offspring and do everything it can to do it. And since plants don't move, they create toxins to allow that to happen. And a lot of those toxins end up on, in and on the grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes. So we have to pay very close attention to them uh, in order to make them as safe and nourishing as they can be. Sprouting is fantastic, right? I love sprouting, all of those things. And, and one of the reasons is because a lot of those toxins are on the outsides of these grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, protecting it until it's in the right environment for it to support new life and sprout. And it cannot sprout unless it deactivates a lot of those, a lot of those anti-nutrients and phytates and whatnot. So sprouting is fantastic, but sourdough is amazing amazing process the thing that i love right now in the world of sourdough is that it's in, in so many people's conscience because of of covid and everybody's starting to bake but unfortunately we missed the we, we missed a lot of opportunities through covid but one of them is people started baking because they couldn't get yeast at the grocery store and so they started sourdough baking and 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 then all of a sudden yeast comes back in the grocery store and they start making regular yeasted bread again but nobody and so many people didn't get the message this is healthier not only is it more liberating and you know you can do all this stuff in your own house without buying commercial yeast, but it's healthier for you and, it, and that hasn't necessarily stuck. But the other problem is there is no FDA regulation for sourdough in this country. In fact, other than, than uh, Great Britain, which is right now has this huge real bread campaign, um, I don't know of a country in the world that regulates, you know, you have to meet these requirements to call it sourdough. 
So what the modern food industry does is they take and they slap a sourdough label on all sorts of bread that isn't sourdough, and they most of the time are adding lactic acid or acetic acid or, or, or citric acid to give it a soury-like taste, and it's just a regular yeasted bread. Yep. So even when people get that message, like maybe there's something better about sourdough, and maybe they have issues with gluten, and then they go and get the sourdough loaf at the local grocery store and come back and say, I see no difference, it's because they weren't eating sourdough. <laughs> the other problem is... There's so many recipes now. On You start Googling like sourdough cupcakes or sourdough brownies or cookies or whatever it is. And the vast majority of those recipes are taking just a regular, standard, modern recipe and slapping a little bit of sourdough mother in it and baking it right away. Yep. And never giving it the opportunity to ferment properly and get the bio, uh, chemical and physical changes to it. So same thing. We're calling it sourdough, even if you're making it at home, but you're not letting it ferment properly. Mm. Okay, this is huge. First of all, I was just at the grocery store literally last week and I was shopping uh, with Kelsey and I, I looked at the bakery section and I said, oh, that's hilarious. That's a sourdough. Let's flip over the ingredients and let's read. And I looked at my friend and I was like, listen, if this doesn't, if this has yeast in it, this is not sourdough. If this does not say water, flour, salt in parentheses, sourdough starter culture, which is also just water and flour, then this is not sourdough. I flipped it over. Not only was the ingredient list 20 long, mm. 20 plus it had yeast, commercial yeast in it. It had something to make it seem sour. Like, I forget what was in it. I, sometimes I've seen vinegar. Sometimes I've seen, yeah, like um, citric acid or other things like that. And I was like, this is complete BS. Like, this is not sourdough. They're just labeling it sourdough. It's a crusty looking loaf. And I was like, that's so offensive to me as someone who pays <laughs> sourdough at home, like with my right. own culture. That's ridiculous. And then the second point that you're saying, and I actually have this in our free sourdough guide, I, I specifically say, like, I'm not big into sourdough discard recipes because that's what happens. People hold all this discard and then they throw it into a batch of cookies and then they bake it right away. And they don't know like, hey, it. yes, there's sourdough starter culture in that or sourdough mother, as you call it. Yes, it's in there, but it's not giving the time. Like time is key in the fermentation recipe. Mm -hmm. And unless you're not only inoculating this thing, but then giving it time to break down in the fresh flour. My only caveat is like, and I say this in the guide, I'm like, listen, if you want to cook something right away and you want to use some of your discard and then bake it right away, use an already sprouted flour. Yeah, like that's great. already been treated to some capacity because then, yeah, go ahead and make your pancakes fresh. Um, I have a pancake recipe in our what's for breakfast thing that because people would just be throwing starter in theirs and then you know mixing it up with the fresh flour and then just cooking it right away and I was but then I was like well that's not fermenting it so and then I would never really remember to mix the batter the night before so in my what's for breakfast I say literally feed your starter maybe double what you would throw the entire starter in that is the base that's the flour mm -hmm. and water mixture of your pancake then you're just throwing in a little bit of milk and eggs and vanilla and it's like a really fluffy pancake because if you're adding any fresh flour you're completely taking away that the purpose sense, yeah. do you see what i, I mean this is what we were just talking it's about it's right? so subtle though because i see it everywhere i see all these like sourdough mm -hmm. recipes and there's then processes. i read it and i'm like there's yeah. no time here yeah there's you processes that are good that are making things more available for us, like we were talking about before. I feel very protective of the sourdough know, and the raw dairy, I know. as you I, can tell. I can tell. <laughs> and there's there's processes that are going to make things more convenient, more right? And I think we're missing the mark on the process, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If we don't allow 
the fermentation to take place. Totally. What's the point? And yeah. it's also temperature driven too, obviously. But anything and something that people need to realize is that when you drop the temperature to below 50 degrees, you're essentially shutting down the bacteria. The yeast still continue at some level. So a lot, a lot of people, and I even wrote this a little bit in the book and I backed off a little. In an effort to try to make sourdough bread accessible to people that don't have an entire Saturday to bake, um, one of the things that I talk about quite a bit is, and, and as you know, you can you can manipulate the temperature. Um, yep. And like one of the things we do in our sourdough bakery here is we go all the way through the process to shape the bread, put it in, put it in the baskets, and then we put it in the fridge overnight. Yep. And the the benefits of that is we can not only bake it the next morning and have fresh bread, but are the window of time that you can put that into an oven and have it be perfect is about now you know five or six hours right that uh instead of like that half an hour window if you let it go through the whole process but that overnight part of it it's not getting any safer the 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 real value comes in that first bulk fermentation Mm -hmm. which is usually two and a half or three hours depending and it's during that time that the bacteria are really going to town to make transform that the gluten and the grains into something that's that's safer and more nourishing but there are some people who will take the bread you know mix up the dough put it in the fridge and let that whole bulk fermentation happen in the fridge and because they went to work or whatever then they came back and they'll divide and pre-shape and shape the loaves and put it back in the fridge Mm -hmm. and then even though it's entirely sourdough and even though that yeast has still done its work the bacteria haven't so it needs to have several hours out at um, room or so temperature or at least above 50 degrees in order for the bacterial fermentation to do the very important work. Mm-hmm. One thing I just started doing, which I, so several years ago, I was down in Mexico uh, teaching at a Ferment Oaxaca conference, and I was doing fermented awful sausages and things, but <laughs> the, there was a guy there, an amazing, Bernardo Flores, he's an amazing sourdough baker from Monterey, Mexico, and he walked around with a pH meter in his pocket. And, and we control so many things here. We control temperature, obviously, and time and all these things. I mean, but I never used a pH. We use a pH meter with a lot of stuff, with cheese and whatnot, but not with it. We hadn't used it with our bread. Yeah. And I said, what's the story with the pH meter? He's like, oh, no. He's like, I don't bake without it. And just to watch him, he would just pull random dough out. No, he's like, this pH right now is 4.6. And he put in his 4.6. It, it was amazing. But one of the things that why that's very helpful is... The pH changes because of the bacterial fermentation. Like we need the yeast to leaven the bread, but it's the bacterial fermentation that's important. And if anybody has a pH meter, stick it in the bread now and then and watch it. It's it's when that changes, when the pH changes, and really when it gets to below 4.6 or around 4.5 is when you start to get the maximum health benefits of it. 4.6 or 4.5 is where you want your dough to be before you stick it in the fridge for a cold proof. Is that right? Yeah, that would be amazing. Okay, and, I'm going to get one. Are they and, expensive? But, no, the, Hannah Instruments has one. The one he uses, the one we use now, uh, Hannah Instruments, it's about $110 or so, and it's made for bread. Like, okay. it's literally made for sourdough baking, uh, and, and it's fantastic. The other, so there's a, once you get it, we could talk again, there's a lot of really uh, little little nuances and that we're still starting to learn, but it is, it is uh, a really good tool for people who are really looking to take that next step and make sure every loaf is exactly the same. You're maximizing the nutritional value of what you're doing with the sourdough process. It's a really good idea. Mm, I love that. I'm actually push, I do the opposite and I tend to push my bulk ferment, like my ambient temperature, my room temp ferment long. I go like yeah. six to eight hours. That's and better. then maybe like one hour in the fridge 
um, just to kind of tighten up the dough. It, it helps. And I'm, and then like, so for example, I made dough last night. It sat at room temperature all night. Our house is kind of cold right now. What, like 69? Cause it's cold and springy. I don't know. And then, um, it's been, I shaped it this morning and then it's been in its proofing basket and in the fridge and I'll bake it tonight. So it's probably getting about eight hours cold proof and about eight hours it's so it's a long fermented dough and it'll be yeah. interesting to see i also use some different flours because i was running out of stuff i'll be interested to see the rise on this thing how it does um it's just so fascinating to me though there's so many intricacies the other thing that is important um that's beyond this conversation we can talk more about it later uh, but the at a certain at a certain ph the gluten begins to degrade now we want it to degrade for health reasons at a certain point, but but after a certain point, it starts to degrade that it doesn't have the same elasticity, it doesn't mm. have the same fabric to, to trap the gases, and you really the, the cool thing about having a pastry, you can really push that limit of things like that that initial uh, bulk ferment to that point, but then you start if you start getting it below a certain point, it um it ends up. Uh, degrading that gluten where the, the bread doesn't act the same. So a, a great example is when we were developing our sourdough croissant recipe and I was, so many people, there's, there's not many people that make sourdough croissants, but most people that do add, add yeast to it. It's sourdough, but they also are adding, adding really? commercial yeast. Yes, oh, it's very shoot. unfortunate. And I will say from a nutritional perspective, I don't have a huge problem with that. Okay. Because they're just leavening it. It's it's helping it's helping leaven it for somebody that doesn't really have really tight control over their their wild bacteria and yeast yet and, and real it, you're still getting that bacterial fermentation from that sourdough, but you're just ensuring that you get that extra puff because now we don't add any commercial yeast here. That hasn't even been commercial yeast in this building for like five years. But um just but from a, a truly from a, a nutritional perspective I'm not that concerned with mm-hmm. that. If somebody, if somebody, a home baker wants to add a pinch of commercial yeast to make sure that the bread, then and maybe that's the thing that helps your kids actually eat it because they're not going to look, you know, eat that brick that you were making for the past several weeks. Totally. But, but one of the issues we had was you don't have to worry as a as a croissant maker if you're just using yeast about any changes in pH because it's not happening. Right there's there's no buildup of lactic acid. There's no there's no gluten degradation in it. So you can do different things with croissant dough if you're just using yeast that you can't do if you have a bacterial fermentation that's that's coexisting with the, with the yeast fermentation. So we have I mean it, it's to, in order to make it work we're putting things into the freezer out of the freezer into the fridge. So we're manipulating we're, we're allowing some gluten development. We're allowing the bacterial fermentation to take place, but not too far till it starts because what we're getting with these croissants. By the time they were finished proofing, they were literally tearing on the outside because the gluten wasn't strong enough to hold it anymore. Mm. And it took us several months. We figured out how to overcome it with just in and out of the fridge. But um, it is it is an important thing to pay attention to that pH. You know, and the, it, the fridge is a tool, right? Because you can kind of pause some elements of the fermentation or slow it down. And then and we can use that to our advantage as long as like what you're saying, we don't we don't completely disregard the natural processes. And I have baked totally overproofed loaves and they're flat and they, they didn't shape well. And, and you know when you're like, okay, this is kind of, it's diminishing returns at this point. The gluten is so broken down that it wasn't able to trap the air. Can't keep any structure. Yeah, and it's yeah. just, and you just make that into the like crouton or French toast or something. Um, I could talk about sourdough all day, obviously. I'm, I'm really fascinated about this black pepper situation that you mm. just mentioned because you're getting rid of all black pepper. I'm like, I have some black pepper in our pantry 
And like, why should, why is black pepper not necessarily good for us? And, and what are you using to replace it? So I, I would love everybody to understand that. We're, I'm not suggesting that if, if you're coming at this, all this approach to food right now new, that black pepper is something that you need to be <laughs> that worried about. I mean, I would get rid of all industrial nut and seed oils out of the cupboard well before I touch anything in my spice yeah. cabinet. But uh, one of the things we're working on, and also I need everybody to understand that I have had a huge oxalate issue um, throughout, well, it turns out, set past several decades that I've only been able to get under control in the past, you know, five, six, seven years. Mm. Um, thankful, thanks to my good friend Sally Norton, who's the expert in, in, in all things oxalate. But what we're trying to do here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, our restaurant, and also obviously in our home, is take those steps that you know, now we have so many things under control. All of our grains are fermented. You know, we're only using animal fat, those sorts of things. Now, when we have that sort of base established, we can now take other steps to, um, to, to, to help ensure that the food is as safe as it can be. So one of the problems, I think a lot of people that, that come to me and hear some of the things that I have to say, or so many people in the space have to say, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. Where do I start? Don't start with black pepper. But if one of the problems with spices is that spices, it's very easy to overconsume certain toxins with spices. And one of the reasons is because a lot of the things that make a spice a spice is actually the toxin. I mean, think mm. cinnamon is incredibly toxic in high doses. In fact, it's poisonous. It, it like, will kill you in high doses. And it's, the, it's, the, it's those very flavors and aromas of the spices that they're using to ward off insects or ward off fungus or you know, protect mm -hmm. themselves. The thing is, there's a couple issues with black pepper. Black pepper has uh, a much higher oxalate content than white pepper does. Now, they are exactly the same spice in that they come from the same plant. So green pepper, black pepper, and white pepper are literally the same berries from the same plant. It's a vine. Uh, the difference is, how, is when they're harvested and how they're processed. So green pepper is harvested when it's very, very immature. Black pepper is harvested when it's a little bit more mature, but still immature. And white pepper is harvested when it's fully mature, which is a big difference. And I'll hit that in just a second. Also, um, green pepper is so fragile, it's such a fragile state, that it has to either um, be hit with a bunch of sulfites or, or brined in order to last, uh, have any kind of shelf life whatsoever. Black pepper is dried. Uh, the way that it is so and it, and it retains its skin white pepper is fermented and then the skin is removed and the reason why this is all important is because uh, the way when it's harvested how it's processed play a very large role in its flavor and also in its safety so if we think about we, we mentioned earlier that plants are really trying to protect themselves and they put a lot of effort and energy into creating toxins to keep other things away diseases insects predators from different parts of the plants um, and, that, and that's true. But it also, plants also put a lot of effort into attracting animals and other, and other life when needed. So flowers are typically very low in toxins. And the, the, what the plant is trying to do is actually make something that's gorgeous and sweet smelling to attract bees and pollinators and things like that to, to, to uh, flowers. Same sort of thing with fruits. The role of a fruit is to attract an animal, in most cases, to come and eat it. And then take these, you know, eat the entire fruit, and then the seeds, which are physically and chemically designed to withstand the digestive tract of animals, then gets deposited in a pile of manure somewhere else, and they've been able to propagate their species that way. So typically, ripe fruits 
are either very low or toxin-free. The mm. seeds are a different story, but the, the fruits themselves, the flesh of the fruits. What happens in many plants is that the plants themselves create, in, in the same uh, mature fruit that would be completely safe, it creates toxins in the immature version because it doesn't want to get eaten until the seeds are mature and ready to be dispersed and, 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 and gone somewhere else. So if anybody's ever had a, uh, an unripe persimmon, for example, if you have an unripe persimmon, if you eat it, I still remember the first time years ago I ate an unripe persimmon because I still tasted it. It was that horrible. But a ripe persimmon is one of my favorite fruits on the planet. Mm. So these peppercorns are fruits. The unripe ones... The green ones and the black ones are loaded with toxins. They don't want to get eaten when it's immature. And most importantly, you know, typically we find a lot of the toxins in plants on the outside, on the outside bran of grains, on the skins of potatoes, and on the outside skin of these immature fruits. So that black part of the of the um, of the the pepperberry for black pepper is loaded with toxins and is on that one is actually retained there so it's full of what we call pepperine which is the pungent part of pepper mm -hmm. um, which is an alkaloid and more importantly it's it's loaded with oxalates when you get to the mature version of the white pepper why it's so much better is number one it's mature so a lot of those toxins have been turned off because now it's you know in, in, in a mature state and it's also fermented and the skin is removed where a lot of those toxins are it's That's not the same exact flavor. Okay. But to me, you know, pepper is, we, we don't think about the amount of pepper we use. We use pepper all the time. And, you know, one quarter teaspoon of pepper is, um, you know, accounts for a good bit of the amount of, of, of oxalates your body can process in a given day. And if you're mm. eating pepper and eating pepper and eating pepper, it, along with other things, can, can, can build up. So here we have a commitment to, to do our best to try to create food with the lowest oxalate contents or toxin content in, in general, our technologies we put into our food do a lot of that work for us, right? Our fermentation or whatever else we're doing to our food helps. But if there is a oxalates, there's no way, I've never found a sufficient way to reduce the dangers of oxalates in food other than just keeping them out of our, out of our diets at, at some level. So we try to keep them out of our, out of our ingredients. So does cooking, like with spinach, for example, does cooking spinach not help reduce or mitigate the oxalate concentration it looks like no the only the only uh so there's some evidence to suggest that cooking a high oxalate food with dairy can help a little because okay. the calcium binds with the oxalates uh, but not at any incredibly meaningful level there's also i found either two or three peer-reviewed articles that suggest that fermentation can help but at the end of each one of them, they, 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 they say, listen, it helped, but it didn't make any meaningful change. Like, mm. it was a little bit here, but it didn't make a big difference. I am hopeful that there is a way to do it. I, uh, but the reality is most of our issues, our high oxalate-containing foods, are foods that we didn't have in high proportions in our bodies in the past. You know, our, the, issue, the reason why, is spinach dangerous? No. If you ate spinach the two weeks out of the year, it would grow in your area. Mm -hmm. The problem comes when we, 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 we ship it around the world. We have it 365 days out of the year, labeled a, a superfood. And there's people that are eating spinach shakes in the morning and spinach salads at lunch because they think they're helping themselves. It was impossible to do that 10,000 years ago. Spinach wasn't even around, but even if it was, you couldn't access it. And nobody could, would eat handfuls of almonds every single day. You know, And even when you commercially had access to I remember as a kid... 
we didn't we didn't have a lot of money growing up. We had nuts at my grandparents' house on Christmas, and it came on a little dish, and it had shells and a nutcracker. And I'd spend all afternoon cracking nuts, and in one day of the year, I'd have a handful of nuts that I would eat, and I was super happy about it. And now I can go to Costco or BJ's and buy bags of shelled almonds this big, and you know, for ten bucks. That's so true. We take away, we talk about this a lot, we take away any of the effort that we have to normally enforce with our food. Like the example I think in Cooked, Michael Pollan's book or documentary is like, listen, you can make a delicious like homemade French fries and like you can eat French fries. But like if you didn't cut the potato or mm-hmm. grow the potato, then clean it, then cut it, then fr- then render the lard, then fry it in the lard, there's a whole spectrum of effort that you have not put forth when you're just going through the drive-thru and then eating a fry and your body like registers this really high satiation food but like or this really palatable food but like you didn't put any of the effort into it so he's like listen if you want to eat cupcakes and ice cream and all that all day long that's great go make it yourself and see how far you get eating it because it's going to take you a long time and you guys know that from um your facilities i uh one, I'm super impressed that your croissants are so beautiful and you're not adding any yeast. And I always want to try the everything bagel one with the seasoning on top and the cream filling. Every time you post a video of that, I'm like, oh, I want that so bad. Yeah, I got to show you. It's so good. Um, I'm also interested. I wanted to talk black pepper, but I, I wanted to talk about how you have this ability to take some of our favorite foods and make them nourishing. I saw you did a donut, right, for like a Mm -hmm. holiday, a special holiday. And I love this because oftentimes people are like, well, I grew up with XYZ food Mm -hmm. or I grew up eating this or I still really enjoy this. And like to be on my real food journey, does this mean I have to never partake in this again? And a lot of what me and Joey say is like food education equals food freedom, meaning like if you are educated and you understand the, the methods and the technologies you have to employ to make that certain food like you can absolutely enjoy food freedom we made french fries the other night as a snack Mm -hmm. it was great and i think though before it gets too nuts right there's there's like restraint right it's not like we're making french fries three times a day or every day and like filling up you know big huge you know Lots of starchy paper, carbs. you know, boxes of it to take in the car. Like we're not <laughs> greasy doing that. boxes in the car. It's like we, we had like three potatoes worth of French fries, with you know, it, it, like that was like the snack for like a movie that we watched or yeah. something. Yeah. So I, I want to hear your any quick tips or any kind of ways that you view making some of turning your favorite foods into nourishing foods. Yeah, and, and I'll start with the and that and that's really what the basis of what we're doing here is. We yeah. have, we have a lot of people come here that are carnivore, or keto, or low carb, or you know, hold it, the list can go on and on. But in most cases, it's one person from a family that is you know dove deep into whatever it is, <laughs> and then they have a partner or a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and kids <laughs> that are that need to eat too. Yeah. And it's almost like you know you you go to the grocery or you go to a really nice restaurant, and the parents are eating this amazing meal, and the kids are eating chicken nuggets. Like <laughs> w- what we wanted to be able to provide is not only the food that the that the you know hardcore person wants, but to nourish the rest of the family as well, because that's what we're trying to do at home. And we found there are a couple ways to do this. You're talking about maybe some quick tips. One is, I write about this quickly, briefly in the book, but uh, when we started to dive down this rabbit hole that we're currently on, we've never crawled out of, and I don't think we ever will in, in a good way. There was one year when I said, I need to make everything that my family eats entirely from scratch. And we're going to try to harvest all the food ourselves. And we aren't farmers. We live in a development. We didn't even have chickens then. Uh, so it meant 
all the almost all the meat that we ate was hunted almost all the vegetables we ate was foraged we made all the cheese we made all the but everything was made entirely from scratch and that year i'm convinced my family um met their biological requirements better than any other year of our lives but eating was a disaster like it was the most stressful thing in the world to even think about getting ready to sit down to dinner because you know everything's around now it was a huge education for me actually for our whole family it was a huge education we learned a lot and we're still relying on a lot of the things we learned that year to make the food uh, now but we had i really after that you really had to find that balance <laughs> that we talked about earlier the second thing was um you can make all sorts of raw ingredients nourishing through these different processes but it is quite another thing to make them nourishing and then turn around and make them delicious and appealing and make and because what we're doing as parents is competing against this modern industrial food system and no matter you know what we put in front of our kids they're going to friends houses or they have access to chick-fil-a or whatever it is and you are competing with these tastes and these flavors and these appearance of this uh, of the other food that they have access to in their lives so you know we built a wood-fired oven in our backyard many years ago when i made the commitment that we were never going to buy bread again but it also became our pizza oven and my son would not eat our pizza for the first three years that we made it we were making the cheese we're making sourdough crust doing all of it but he he it, I, we weren't making it good enough we we're making it nourishing but it didn't compete with Domino's or or whatever that, that pizza hut whatever because it wasn't that good yet and when i was able to cross that threshold and learn enough about food to make it nourishing and make it delicious and make it beautiful is when as a family the kids really started to embrace it better and the reality is we are hardwired to eat nourishing food so it isn't that big of a task to be able to do it in fact the nourishing food should be taste better and be more satiating than than the other junk in, in the store but so i spent a lot of time learning on how to not make it just nourishing but also make it delicious and i also spent a lot of time um plating it i mean it, I would spend days, as you do too, making food. Like to make a loaf of bread, it takes whatever, two days, three yeah. days. And then all of a sudden, we just slap it on something and eat it. Five extra minutes to make whatever it is look beautiful on a plate is worth it. I mean, it is art. I know people make fun of foodies and make Instagram pictures. But I mean, you've, you're putting literally dumping your heart and soul into making something to nourish your family. You might as well take 30 seconds to make it look beautiful too it makes it it's made a big difference to us but when we opened this place what we wanted to do was to take those same foods foods that people eat every single day of their not maybe they eat every day but they eat in their lives all the time and make that food as nourishing as it can be because that's where the real differences come and we have families that come here and eat pizza with us once a week like it's okay and they don't and there's no guilt with it i mean we're we're doing all the butchering we're making all the pepperoni we're making all the sauces we're firm sourdough long fermented sourdough crust mm. we're making all the cheese from a from milk from a local dairy all of it is made entirely in-house and that you know i wouldn't eat pizza every day just because i don't want that many carbs on my diet but i have no problem with serving this pizza to somebody all the time or people in my family eating it all the time because it's the healthiest version possible. And they're also not um, giving up the the flavors and the aromas of it. It's actually really good. We do, and so the Boston Cream Donuts, that was my Achilles heel was Boston Cream Donuts <laughs> growing up. And I said, let's make the, the healthiest one we can. Not to suggest people eat Boston Cream Donuts right, all the time, right. but this donut is 100% wild sourdough brioche. And we fried in lard 
and we take the highest quality chocolate possible we have access to and we do a uh, we do a ganache of that with local cream that we di we dip the, the side of it in and it's filled we developed a, a sourdough pastry cream that we fill it with on the inside i mean all the grains are fermented there's we don't use any um refined sugars in here at all they're fried in lard if you're going to eat a donut that's a fantastic donut and we've been wearing the um cgms Same, yeah oh my god it's mind-blowing because as you, if you're wearing it and you're making sourdough, you know there's a huge difference. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy you're wearing it. I'm trying to convince Joey to put one on because he's uh, like an intense athlete and I would just love to see what his blood sugar regulation is like because I'm sure it's like very good. I'm sure you're very stable is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to talk about this, but two things. Sourdough pastry cream. At first when I read this, I was like, why are they calling that sourdough it's because you have to add flour to make a pastry cream one of our our oldest daughter is like a very intense baker like mm -hmm. we bought her we joey bought her a kitchen aid for christmas which is i don't even own one like it's wild to me we she we bought her a flame torch for <laughs> like nice. easter last year or gotta have one because she loves making creme brulee so she she can make like a full um cream puff on her own she can do the cream and the puff and the shoe pastry the pat of shoe mm. pastry which is typically like a cooked uh you have to like reduce the hydration so you have to cook it in a pan anyways the sourdough pastry cream are you using starter as a thickening agent or is this yeah. like a secret thing like yeah. no, there sure? are no we have a we call it an open source kitchen there okay, are no okay. secrets at all in okay, fact great. our goal is to just have, have people learn how to do these I things in their own know. homes so one of the things we found uh is we made the commitment to do everything sourdough. There will be no grains provided anywhere that haven't been through at least the sourdough process, if not both sprouting sourdough. Um, we had to overcome a few things. And it happened yeah. uh, first when we were getting, this was a couple of years ago when we were doing a Thanksgiving dinner special for everybody. You know, people take it all home. And we wanted to provide gravy. Mm. I'm like, man, I, you know, I guess we could just use arrowroot flour which is full of oxalates or rice flour something to thicken it but you know what let's let's stay true to this let's see if we can use use flour but ferment fully fermented flour mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you the, the trick right now um we're, i'm actually writing a book right now on, on sourdough mother but I'll, I'll let this one out of the bag for sure it doesn't matter um if you figure out how much flour you want to add to say making a uh making a gravy or making a pastry cream or whatever and then you calculate how much mother you need to add to put that much flour in. So let's say you have 100% hydration mother and you want to add 100 grams of flour, put 200 grams of mother in. Mm. That, the moisture doesn't make a difference. And if, you're, and if you're making a roux, which you can do with sourdough mother, um, the, the water ends up evaporating anyhow. It, it looks really silly for a little bit until all the water's evaporated. Then it looks just like a, a normal roux. Yeah. So add that much mother in so when we do the the the, um, the pastry creams we just and this card is fine it's already been completely through i'm not adding any extra flour so all the flour in the mother uh, even the mm -hmm. old one we call when we refresh a mother we call the old stuff grandmother and so we can't <laughs> and, and it's kind of it's still useful but it's not doesn't have as much energy grandma. as the mother does right yeah. the grandma so the grandma we just take grandma so the discard we take that and put that right in but we've calculated I'm putting this much mother in to introduce that amount of flour yeah. into what I'm making, and it works perfect. So for for those that don't know, a roux is like a one-to-one -one flour to, to fat, mm -hmm. right? And this creates what looks like a paste, 
that you thickens. cook down and you can mm -hmm. kind of turn it to different colors, right? Light to dark. And that you use with, with cream to make a pastry cream or milk, right? Yeah. And then you, you can use that also with uh, pan drippings and stock to make, uh, to make a gravy. Mm. And that is it's so interesting. As soon, because I started thinking about it, right? I was like, okay, hold on. How, how are they doing fermented? And as soon as you started talking, I was like, oh my gosh, there's fermented flour in, in a starter. Mm -hmm. If you pour that in with some butter or some, you know, bacon fat or lard or whatever, right? You're going to be able to make a roux and it's just going to, like you said, cook the water off. Yeah. So put the, the, the key is you have to get the, the butter or fat melted first, mm -hmm. then throw the mother in and then don't panic, you know, work it, work, work. And as soon as that water is evaporated off, it looks just like you started a roux with just a, so a cup of flour, whatever it is. And the, the math equation there, because I'm terrible at math, but you're saying if you needed 100 grams of flour for a typical recipe, add 200 grams of starter because your starter should be a one-to-one -one ratio water and flour, right? So you're, it's, it's heavier because there's water in there, so you're adding 200 grams Versus right. the 100 of just the dry flour because you're accounting for the weight of the water that will then be evaporated. Totally. And the reason why that's important is because you want to have a one-to-one -one ratio of, of the fat. fat to flour. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's, I'm excited you're writing a sourdough book. I, it's it's actually right. a sourdough mother book. Mother, it's, think, it's about everything you can do with sourdough mother except for making bread. Wow. That's going to be so useful because... It. Making a roux. That's huge. I mean, like roux is like... I use my sourdough for so much other than bread. And I think that that's like... I mean, for us now, making gravy, like, I mean, that's such a simple mm -hmm. application right there. I mean, boom. Yeah. He figured it out. That's so cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I had a second point, and now I got so excited about this pastry cream that I have since forgotten um, what I was going to ask you. It was something along the lines of the sourdough or this... Oh, it'll come back to me. Any any thoughts that you have? No, I'm I'm blown away. I love the uh, I love the uh, the room application. The the culinary nerd in me is going nuts right now. That's awesome. I love it. It works. Yeah, it, it works. It works really well, and it's been so versatile for us. Really. And I love that you're, because so often in this like health space, right? People feel like they. Oh, we were going to talk glucose. That's what we were going to talk about. Mm. People this is kind of in line with that people want to go like oh i'm grain free i'm out of there or they want to just say well i eat grains from time to time and since it's such a minimal part of my diet i don't really care and i love that people like you and we recently had on kate cavanaugh who kind of does this with her restaurant too it's like we have people in the traditional food space who are kind of standing in this gap of saying like hey you can still eat some of the really amazing foods that you kind of grew up with or feel nostalgic to you Yes, don't eat a donut every day. Don't eat French fries at maybe even every day. But like, you can do it in a nourishing way that's not harmful to you. And I also appreciate that you're respecting people's emotional and communal side of eating. Because like you said, you ate for a year just living off the land and it was so freaking stressful. And you're like, yeah, we our nourishment was met or our, our nutrient needs were met. But like overall, was it... Was that the end goal? Um, okay, this glucose thing, because I'm on week three of mine. Let and me I tell you right now, two in two hours and 20 minutes, Kate and Josh will be here. No way. Yeah, they're coming to visit this weekend. Are they? Yeah, they're oh, driving I'm so down. jealous yeah. of that. Yeah, I'm so excited. What we, are you guys we, doing together? We, um, I was on her podcast, and then I was headed to speak at Low Carb Denver 
uh, a couple weeks after that, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't realize she lived in New York. I'm like, I, I, I heard all about your butcher shop. I'd love to visit it, you know, meet up. She's like, you know, I'm not there. I'm in New York. But, you know, my husband will be there because they were opening up that little cafe thing yeah. with Colorado mm-hmm. State. So um, she said, he'll be out there. And then she messaged me about a week. She said, I just booked a ticket. Well, I'll be out there, too. Aww. So we met up there and spent a, a, an amazing afternoon together. And we're like, listen, you guys are in New York. It's not that far come down because we have we have a teaching kitchen as part of the eastern shore food label above the restaurant and we also have a little apartment in the back like you guys come down spend the weekend or whatever so they're coming down uh this afternoon oh my gosh i'm so jealous yeah, definitely Please tell say, kate hi yeah absolutely. tell kate we said hi because we loved our conversation with her and i i just lo- i've been in contact with her since i just think she's doing some amazing amazing she work. absolutely is so i'm sorry glucose this glucose thing right how long have you been wearing the monitor and what are you learning from uh how your body responds to carbohydrates so we have these amazing friends. Uh, I don't know. Do you know Mark Kukazella? He wrote a book called uh, Born to Run. Oh, oh no, right. sorry. Run for your life. Run for your life. I read Born to Run. Yeah, he didn't write Born to Run. He wrote Run for your life. I was going to say, <laughs> if you know this dude, I'd love to talk to him because I love that book. It, it's an equally amazing book. Uh, he, he's he's an ultra marathoner, a long Are distance Are you a runner. runner at all? I do, but like, I the most I've ever done is a half marathon. Okay, we, Joey's training for a marathon right are now. Are you really? He runs in four weeks. Yeah. Congratulations and good luck. It is yeah. a bucket list of mine. I'm it's, not built like a runner, but I love to run. Oh, man. I'm so happy because we run into people in this food space all the time who are like, cardio's trash and running's terrible for you and only lift weights. And Joey's like, but I just really love running. <laughs> so I, mean, I like lifting weights, too. Oh, yeah. We, we're into lifting weights, too. But it's nice to hear some a fellow runner who's into it. Yeah. Anyways. So, so he, he works. He and uh, his uh, girlfriend, Chrissy, they both work in one of the poorest. Uh, I think it's the poorest county in West Virginia. It's one of the poorest counties in the country um, with patients with diabetes, mm. type, mostly type 2. And they've been able, as you, as you can imagine, get complete remission full, just by changing diet. Yeah. And what's impressive, well, it's impressive anyhow, but what's really impressive about it is that um, it's happening. It's not happening in Beverly Hills where people have access to all this incredible food. It's happening. He even wrote an incredible PDF guide uh, for people who most of their food comes from the dollar store and how to wow. do it from a healthy way. I mean, he's actually really meeting, they both are meeting people where they are. But they came and we had them give a presentation here to the local community. And uh, we, we were sitting up one night talking with them and they were like, hey, you should, you should put a CGM on continuous glucose monitor. And I, and I said, oh, I'd love to. You got to get a script. I'll write you a script. And uh, I, I just happened that I had a physical the next day. And I went to my doctor and uh, the physical went great. And at the end of it, I'm like, hey, and just, I was so excited. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get a continuous glucose monitor. And my doctor was like, wait, why? <laughs> And I said, oh, you know, I started, she interrupted me again. She said, listen, you're not diabetic. You're not even pre-diabetic. We only, she goes, I, I caution against it. Now, I recommend that you don't do it. She said, you, we only recommend it for people with diabetes and sometimes people with pre-diabetes. And I said, why? And she says, because, you know, if you wear that, it's going to, uh, you know, tell you your body's reaction to food and you're going to start thinking about what you're eating and, and I'm like, that's it. If you said, why do I want to wear it? That's exactly the reason. He, I think it didn't what? make any sense at all. And she, and she actually got angry. She's like, well, whatever, do whatever you want to do, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a part of it. Wow. I'm like, wow. I put this on. It was about a year ago. And I, my wife and I both wore one solid for about three months. And then we just, we just started wearing it. It's fascinating. And what I love is not only do I get to do exactly what my doctor said, put, you know, see what's happening. But the two things that I found that help with it as well, or the benefits of it is one, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, 
I am able to put real data alongside of the way that I feel. Like, yes. you know, whether it, I feel a certain way or my body's reacting a certain way, and it might mm -hmm. just be subtle, but then all of a sudden I see something change. I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, it makes sense. And I ate this then, and that really helps me get in tune with my body and my body's signals, right? And the second thing is, it's kind of like Big Brother. Like, I know something's watching me. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you, cheating isn't the right word, but you go to have whatever. It's like, it's getting recorded somewhere. And it's yeah. actually helped me stay on track a little bit with some times that I might have, uh, otherwise would have, would have had something that I obviously didn't need. 100%. What has your experience been? Oh my gosh, we're going to record a whole podcast on it because I'm like fired up about it. I read The Glucose Revolution, um by the glucose goddess on instagram that book i read in 24 hours fantastic book it. fantastic book i had actually bought so i bought a level so i didn't need to get like a prescription or anything i'd bought the cgm probably nine months ago after hearing lily nichols and diana rogers on a podcast talking about it and i was like oh this is fascinating so i bought it and then i was too scared to put it on and then i read the glucose revolution and immediately put it on and so I, I've been in my third week now i think i'm gonna uh, renew and do a full two months I think is what that would be um, if I get another kit. But I've been so surprised. One, you're exactly right about changing how you eat and not in a way that I'm like fearful because I actually feel mm -hmm. way better knowing mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm, I ate this type of carb in this setting and I did not spike my glucose. And people always get, get, get confused because they're like, but rising and falling of your blood sugar is normal. And I'm like, yes, that's great. But I don't want to see 30 plus spikes on a regular basis and I can tell you right now when I'm spiking 30 to 50 points extra I can't physically feel that in my body but it, I can see on my app that I am spiking mm -hmm. and so I think that's one thing where it's like before my eating habits yes I eat super quote clean and nourishing foods and whatever but I wasn't really paying attention to like how and when I was consuming a carbohydrate. And I wasn't realizing that my daily habit actually was probably spiking my blood sugar too quickly in a mm. time period. Mm. Instead of having those gentle curves and those like d normal blood sugar regulation, I was probably walking around super spiked. And so that's been the piece for me where it's like, you know, we'll have, we'll have stuff in the house that the kids like to enjoy or Joey's like to eat or just yesterday, like, really amazing coffee or chocolate offered to me and I was like man I just don't really have a desire for that right now because one I can see exactly what happens when I eat a piece of chocolate by itself mm -hmm. on its own with no other like protein or fat or, or fiber around it um, and I don't want that because I know that that's not good for that's not fueling my body well when I'm inundating my body with too much glucose and it doesn't have the time to store it properly and then it gets stored as fat I don't want that mm. um, and so people, I, I posted something online. Some people were like, oh, it's just another thing to freak out about. And I, I'm like you, where I'm like, I'm data driven. This is encouraging to me. This has been fascinating to me. It's empowering to me. And the funny thing is the last three weeks, I truthfully haven't exercised except for my daily like walks. I haven't really like increased my heart rate a ton. And um, so the first three weeks I haven't done that. I think for the next two two weeks or four weeks total that I'm going to put the CGM on that's when I'm um, going back to my like training and, and running and weightlifting and it'll be very fascinating to see how my glucose levels respond when I add in some more of that typical exercise component it's just been really cold here and I've been not we had family in town I've been out of my workout rhythms but it's just been fascinating yeah. to see how my body responds to different foods and you think to yourself oh this is sourdough this is long fermented it's fine it's still a carbohydrate 
yep. and you might still be consuming too many carbs for your body's particular fuel needs. And everyone has their own history. And I, I think that some of the way that I grew up kind of eating really shaped and impacted how my body responds to carbs. And um, like I said, I'm not carb free by any means. Like I still enjoy them, but now I know exactly how they respond to my body. And then you get to make an informed decision. And you know, it, it, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I immediately want to do it. Like <laughs> if you say don't do, you can't do this. But if it's coming from me, then it's empowering. And it, yeah. it, no, this is this is all me. Like I look at this, I make a decision on how to, nobody's telling me, I look at the phone and I, okay. So I, I, I it, 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 empowering I think is the right word. And it also, I think for a lot of people, um, it, it gets to put some real data, personal data behind how your body responds to even things that we can, that are, that are advertised as super healthy. So there was, uh, a while months and months and months ago, uh, in the morning I taught a sourdough bread. That was it was a sourdough mother class. We do we do a lot of sourdough mother classes here too. So it was a sourdough mother class, and one of the things we were we were making were uh, were, were sourdough waffles in the class. And I had just started putting the I, I just started wearing that the CGM again. And somebody in the class was like, you know, eat eat the waffle and see what happens. So I ate the waffle, and I mean it 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 responded because it was a carbohydrate, but it was a very gentle up, very gentle recovery, and it was great. The same day, hours and hours later, it was on a Saturday, we were up in town. We were kind of in a fairly rural area here. So we were, we were a ways away from here and we were in town and there was, I think we had to go to a Target or something. And we had our, me and my wife had our youngest daughter, Alyssa, with us. And she had been, we don't eat out very much at all, as you can imagine. And she was asking to go to Playa Bowls. Do you guys have a Playa Bowls? Mm-mm. No. You know what it is? It's kind mm-hmm. of, it's mostly on the East Coast here, but it's a... Uh, it's like an acai bowl and okay. you, know, you put you like that kind of, but there's a bunch of different options, but it's that kind of thing. So certainly something I would most, I call them oxalate bowls because most everything <laughs> they have is just filled with oxalates. But it, she had talked us into it and it, there were other worse choices around. So we went and I was actually hungry at that point. It was, it was nighttime and I needed something to eat. So I got one. And I picked like the best absolutely possible option. I spiked to... I don't know. It was like almost three. I don't forget what it was. I, I, I want to. I've never seen before on for wearing this thing forever. I spiked like this and then dropped like this. It was it was scary to see how you know most people around here would consider that place one of the top three healthiest mm. yeah. places to go eat. And I will never eat another one the rest of my life. Did you feel the spike though? Could you physically feel any symptoms? I felt the drop. I do yes, feel that. Exactly. Yeah. You feel the drop, but you don't feel the spike. My, the way my app has it, it's the most obnoxious thing. It's this little rocket ship. And it will <laughs> tell you you're spiking. And it will log the number of hours that you have stayed in a spiked, you know, like your glucose State. has been too high. Yeah. And you want your whole ring to be green because you have regulated. And I've had days where I've had three major spikes. And I'm like, I was eating foods that I would have normally never thought would spike Mm -hmm. my glucose levels. I was eating chicken noodle soup, but it was like really heavy on the noodle side. But I wouldn't have really thought about it that way. Um, One time I had like six ounces of steak and then I had a slice of sourdough pizza and it spiked my glucose levels. And I'm like, okay, well, what else did I eat that day? Did I not have enough fiber? Like, was I not moving enough? Like, what else was going on? I also, in the time that I've been wearing it, it, like gave like a public presentation to like a room of like 65 people and 
um, that like adrenaline boost, like the stress, like increased my blood sugar. And I was like, I didn't even eat in the time period before I spoke. But in in my app asked me like, what happened today at like Hmm. 640 p.m.? And I was like, oh, I was public speaking. Like it's, it's crazy to see how stress, how sleep, how everything influences your it's because it's the core of your metabolism in my opinion and it's like for me i've always struggled like with my metabolism like functioning and firing on all cylinders or like what's going on and now i'm realizing glucose regulation is something very much i can control so i really love having that and the nice thing about it is you know for people who are diabetic a change in your in in, in your blood glucose can be dangerous immediately right Yeah, yeah but for most of us for most uh people who are not we have these fluctuations that at that particular moment isn't the end of the world. And like you mentioned, sometimes we don't even feel it. Yeah. But one of the things I loved about the Glucose Revolution book and a lot of the other information that's coming out about blood glucose regulation is it's not that individual thing. It's the buildup of all those little ones over time mm-hmm. that can make such a huge difference. Uh, and this allows us to you know, understand that. I, I don't, I'm not going to wear it the rest of my life. I'm probably going to take it off next week. Maybe in a couple of months, I'll put it back on again. But right, I, right. but I do think it, it was, it, it's been very, very valuable to wear it. I, I'm really interested for me <clears throat> on, from like a performance point of view. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing long distance running, so like, let's see here. Last Sunday, I ran 18 miles. This Sunday, I'll run 15. The Sunday after that, I'll run 22. And then... Wow. That's my longest run until I taper off to run the marathon. And when you're on a run like that, there's so much you have to do to your body for your body to keep running. I don't know. Mm. So funny. Like when I first started running, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, people go, don't know. You have to like eat and drink on you your know, run. I'm out on like a 13 mile run. I get done and I'm like, all right, well, I'm feeling kind of like dizzy. I need to get back and eat some food clearly. By the time I get back to the house, I'm like, I'm not even hungry. Like something's wrong with me. Like I wake up in the middle of the night, I feel like I have a fever. I mean, it was just bad, right? And talking to my buddies, they're like, well, what did you eat and drink on the run? I'm like, well, I ran. Then I came home to eat and drink. And they said, you can't do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, learned that lesson, you know, the, the very hard way. But it'd be very interesting to, for me to see, because I'll know like what at what mile, like did I take a dip? Mm-hmm. And I could even almost, you know, again, my brain is thinking like strategically, for when I go run, like if I could have one of these monitors for, you know, this Sunday or next Sunday prior to my race, I can know like, wow, hey, mile six, you know, I, I'm, I'm hitting a point where my, my blood sugar is really dropping or I assume it would drop. And and then, you know, I, I should, you know, eat some salted oranges or, you know, drink some water. Right. I, I need to do something at this point so I can keep myself kind of at a steady pace for, you know. You you really miles. would love Mark Hukazel's book. I wrote it down. Run for your yeah, life. Run for your life. Yeah. Oh yeah, I wrote it down. I, yeah, I heard you say it, and I was like, well, you know, he doesn't know this, but I'm gonna for sure read that book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know it now. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and you have. We found these little gels because like sports gels are often just like filled with garbage, but sure. we found one that's organic maple syrup. It's got um, what else does it have in it? An organic like raspberries. Organic mm. raspberries and then um, sea I salt. think that's it. Yeah, sea salt. Wow. And it's just so legit. And it's in like, like a little pouch and like I can I I put them in the back of my shorts. Like I have a little flap that I take. I'll just cram a few of those back in my. I've also been eating. Okay, now you're gonna get me on something here. But I've been eating salted oranges on my run, huh. and they are the best thing. Amazing. What do you mean salted oranges? I'll take oranges. I peel them. And I, I lay them out like on like some paper or like plastic mm. or whatever, and then I salt them, like 
rather heavily, to be honest. And then I wrap it up and I put that in my pocket. And so like, as I'm on the run, I pull them out and I eat the oranges. And it's like, after 15, I'd so 20 minutes after I eat that. You can feel it. Oh my gosh. I feel like I am like, I, I just started my run. Now, what I, what I will tell people, because they're like, oh, well, what do you mean? It's magic. It's not magic. It's, there's a, my leg tiredness, like the muscle fatigue doesn't go away. Like my, like my right. legs are getting tired. My muscles are getting spent as I run further and further. But there's something about like, your energy levels and, 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 and like your, like your heart rate. And it's just after you kind of have, have that hit of those oranges for me at least. And then I have these, these pouches that I take now as well, because you know, at mile like 14, you don't really want to chew up an orange at that point. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of have staggered it that way. But so. it's the same general idea, right? It's a source of, of sugar and, and then some totally. salt. So totally. And it feels good. You know, I think the oranges definitely feel better, but but it, it does. They, they, they do help uh, significantly, I think. So I, I would love to see. We got to get you a CGM. I would love to see like a long run, like what, because uh, I feel like at that point you can kind of like build out some tactics. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. Wow. We've covered so much. <laughs> I love it. Um, can you tell people where they can find you and especially your book? Absolutely. So the name of the book is Eat Like a Human, and you can find that in print or uh, electronically or also audio on all major book outlets, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookshops and the like. Mm -hmm. And what I love, mm -hmm. and I'm very proud to say that I did read it myself, but I had to audition for it. It was crazy. So I had in the contract that I'd be considered to read it. But when it came that time, they got three professional readers to read the same passage, and then I had to read the same passage and, and you compete. Beat them out. I didn't beat them. I think I at least was good enough <laughs> that they said okay. But it was truly the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was to read it. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled that I did. Uh, so there's that book and any of the work. So our our nonprofit, the uh, the Eastern Shore Food Lab, is where all of our research, our teaching, our education, our outreach, our classes all go through there. We do a ton of in-person classes. We have a big teaching kitchen here. We have online classes, uh, and that can be all the information about that can be found at eatlikeahuman.com. And we just started doing cultural trips. We love sharing the stories about the people that we've been with and the, the places that we've gone. Mm -hmm. But we just this year launched, are, are starting to launch the opportunity to, to come to some of these places. So uh, we, we uh, our first one is to Ireland. We have some coming up for uh, Oaxaca and for Kenya and the like, uh, probably something in Italy as well. But right now, the first one is in Ireland. It, it actually sold out the day we posted it. But we'll have a bunch more coming up, and there's a lot of information there at eatlikehuman.com. And then our the Modern Stone Age Kitchen is where we put all of that into practice to create real nourishing food. So we have a restaurant downstairs. We do ship some of our foods that are easily shipped. Uh, but in the restaurant, there are no two ingredients put together outside of our walls. We make all the butter, the cheese. We do in-house butchering. All of it's done. Uh, fermentation. Everything's done in-house. And we're located on the eastern shore of Maryland in Chestertown. And you can find out information about that at modernstoneagekitchen.com. And we're on social media at Modern Stone Age Kitchen and at Dr. Bill Schindler, at DR mm -hmm. Bill Schindler. Yeah, definitely give him a follow on Instagram. Your Instagram content is amazing. I love it. Um, I love that on the back of your book, you have Dr. Mark Hyman. You've got Sally Fallon Morrell. You have got Rob Wolf. You've got the author of Deep Nutrition. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this I, I love it. Um, definitely go check out the book. Definitely go hit them up on their various websites. This trip thing is fascinating to me. So you're like facilitating these group trips to these 
trips, mm-hmm. places, and then like what's all involved? Like you're handling the travel and the we're the bringing stay. everybody. Yeah, we're bringing it all. So we're since we lived that. in Ireland, we have the infrastructure there to launch it with that. But it's a week in Ireland, and it's prehistory, it's history, it's archaeological sites, it's food. Uh, we're 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 foraging, we're, we're cooking together, we're having people cook for us, we're learning about all the cultures surrounding food, ancestral food preparation in Ireland. And then what I'm, what's really, really cool on top of just being around some amazing people and beautiful landscapes and, and nourishing food is that uh, the second to last night we returned back to Dublin and uh, Kevin Thornton, who's Ireland's first two Michelin star chef, is we're going to be in his home and he's, he and his team are cooking us a five course meal and it, it's we're i'm so excited about it so we're how gonna how many people how many people are going 12. oh we had we had to keep it fairly low just oh, totally. because of that personal experience of all of it but how, that's is, awesome is there like a wait list we can get on and <laughs> actually there is list? in fact we had such a good response to it we're um we're probably doing another one in the fall right afterwards that's amazing yeah me yeah. and joey are- definitely interested in that all right cool well thank you so much for coming on the show i love all the topics we got to cover and uh this has been a great conversation oh my so gosh thank you. yeah, yeah. i can do it every minute of it thank you both for the work you're doing yeah. spreading, spreading all this information and with that dr bill schindler has left the virtual chat mm-hmm. what a great conversation honestly i feel like we could have even talked for a long time which is funny because, you know, we always kind of warn guests like this is about how long we do typically go. And then I feel like the times where I'm really specific on that, we always blow right past I, the time. Yeah, I know. Right? You just got to not say anything. You just got to let it go. We just had so much good information. And, I, you know, I already knew he was a wealth of knowledge. I already, you know, I'd met him in person. He's really just nice, amazing family guy. I loved that. Um, I'm serious. Go follow him on Instagram because he's dropping some good stuff there. Yeah. What did you think, Joe, of the of the overall convo? So I get really interested in history. Mm-hmm. So I was stoked to hear him talk about just all his findings of, you know, different tools and how they how innovations were created and the purpose behind those innovations. I think is a very interesting thing. And the study of people always interests me. Yeah, same. And just understanding why people do what they do. And this idea of this like power struggle and how oftentimes it's, it's food centered or related in some capacity. And man, you see that today, mm-hmm. right? It's like, who's in control of the food now, right? Mm-hmm. If, back then it was whoever had the storehouse, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think about, I mean, I'm reading through, what is it? The book of uh, like, like uh, Genesis and Exodus. And you think about the, the, the storehouses for the seven years of feast and the seven years of famine. And Joseph is there storing like grain away, right? And I'm like, well, no, no kidding. In that, in that era, like Egypt probably was in so much control, had so much power. Totally. Because of that. Mm-hmm. So, so many people probably gravitated and moved there and fell under their control. And and food is, is security. It's safety. It's, I don't know. So, yeah, that, that to me was, was super interesting. You know, this idea of a glucose monitor on a, you know, really long run is interesting to me. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm glad that you finally saw, like, an example of a fellow, like, male that's wearing one. Because I feel like I've been telling you for a long time and the only examples are, like, girls. And- I've never been opposed. I never said, like, I don't want to. Okay, I just wasn't sure. Um, one of the things that stuck out with me and that will stick with me after this conversation was how Bill was saying, like, you can you can meet all your nutritional needs, mm-hmm. but like that's not the end all goal. That's not even what being human is like. We're not just animals foraging for food and then like, OK, we're satiated. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Like we're spiritual, we're communal, we're celebratory, we're relational. And so, yeah, you can live a really miserable life and meet all of your 
nutritional needs and only focus on your food as like meeting every single Mm -hmm. aspect or you can you can try that can be your goal and i assume like it'd be really really hard Mm -hmm. um probably not very fulfilling yeah and there's a balance there there's a balance to like how, how can we meet our nutritional needs and also meet some of these other um beautiful kind of external experiences as a human and it sounds a little like woo woo here but you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. there's just more to food than eating for hey i need this x amount of protein x amount of carbs x amount of fat so i just i appreciate that he he talks about that because i think in the wellness space especially you know that's where some of that fear around food comes in oh well it's not serving a purpose why would i eat that croissant it's not biologically necessary you know sourdough is bs as paul saladino likes to say but i really appreciate dr bill's approach in that Speaking of understanding more about our nourishment and diffusing or just getting rid of that fear, Mm -hmm. right? Education. Yeah, we're all about it. We're about it. Mm -hmm. Some of the ways that we're doing that is through Homegrown, this podcast. We have resources, books that you can get for free or buy on our website, homegrowneducation.org. Get on there, find curriculum for your kids. You can find you know, workbooks and things for yourself. We also have Elevate. Mm-hmm. Which by the time this podcast drops is probably in full swing. Probably true. Yeah. So, but this If you is... missed this round of Elevate, what should people do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we had a lot of people reach out and say like, hey, I can't make it this round. Can we, Is there, are you going to be offering this class again? And so for those who don't know, Elevate is kind of this new offering we've developed with another one of our teammates who is a certified holistic nutritionist. And we were like, how can we get people in small little cohorts, which I love that he's taking like 12 people to mm-hmm. Ireland. Like Sick. that's like Elevate on the next level, right? Oh, yeah. How can we get people in these small cohorts for six weeks, really help them transition their households for long-term sustainable change? Not just like, hey, here's a list of what to eat and what not to eat, Mm -hmm. but like, hey, here's a list of how to source your food, how to have a mindful budget in a realistic economy where, listen, things are tight. Where do I need to prioritize my money and where can I buy maybe a cheaper option without taking my nutrition, like being really, really honest with people. And then also like teaching them the skills like, hey, you want to make homemade breads? Well, you're going to have to learn the art of sourdough. Mm -hmm. Are you going to be able to learn that in one 15 minute or one hour long one one 15 minute Instagram video or one hour long class you've bought? No. So like, how can we coach you over six weeks to understand these principles and do that? The live part of this, I feel like is powerful because school and teaching and there is no one size fits all yeah and that's that's something that we were really thinking about the reason why we're keeping these classes a little bit smaller so if it did sell out and you missed it that is because we want to be able to provide customized teaching at least to an extent to all these people right because everybody's life is different Mm -hmm. right so elevate man get in the next round of it huge huge stuff going on there and um super excited about that uh goods yeah, this other like exciting kind of arm of the community. I feel like, man, the um, the soap and the sponges are, I'm like we're just it's we just a whole keep new world. On the it's just a whole new world. <laughs> it's it's um, you know, when, when you go to do your dishes, and you have a natural sea sponge. When I say natural, is that even worth saying? It's just a sea sponge. Well, yeah, I mean you can say it. 
it's a it's a true you know a sea animal creature from the sea that once lived that yeah. was a sponge totally right and we use it now to, to clean our dishes the 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 soap is lard dish soap yeah mm-hmm. just soaponified lard dude, dude dr jenna hua would be so happy i know no 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 fragrances or scents here no phthalates no parabens no all nothing. those all those words that end with eights <laughs> we don't got them then in, in the soap <laughs> The soap is she would highly approve outstanding stuff we got sourdough kits the sourdough kits are awesome and we should have talked about it with we just were so we had so much going on we had to send one of or, or a set of our uh a sourdough to, to bill, bill. Mm-hmm. and because these things are changing the game mm-hmm. from a proofing situation yeah i have a dough proofing in one right now as we speak now i've, I've been getting some questions they do you flower the inside of them i typically flower maybe one time because i feel like they're pretty like good to go yeah so typically people do a lot of different things if you're using a regular rattan proofing basket there's like a inner lining that's usually made out of like linen and people flower that people sometimes they use it without the lining because they like the way that the ridges make the loaf people flower that and so the same thing applies for this Mm -hmm. proofing basket i would do a light dusting of flour you can do rice flour i like a semolina you can do a sprouted flour if you want but it's kind of like you flour at one time and then like i use it over and over again and so any flour that comes off onto the dough obviously leaves these things stay really dry versus my old rattan banatins which were just soaked as we're mailing these out, it's going to be so exciting to see people's life change when yeah, it comes to using I know. It's making just such their sourdough. A better invention. And then the uh, the coffee. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! So, if you haven't met us before, if this is your first episode. Elizabeth and I drink some coffee. Mm-hmm. We love coffee. Love coffee. But we like to drink it responsibly. Oh, yeah. Not only for our health, but also for the people that grew the coffee beans, right? Like, we don't want to just consume this product that we have no idea where it comes from mm-hmm. and completely out of sight, out of mind. We we, we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So we found, gosh, it's got to be the best coffee. Is this the best coffee there is? Uh, that's probably pretty subjective, I feel like. It's the best coffee there is. Okay. Factually. You can say that if you want. Other people may have a different opinion. That's okay. I support all coffee drinkers. It is outstanding coffee. Premium. Specialty. <laughs> premium. Other terms. <laughs> it's it's technically a specialty coffee. Yeah. So it's grading far above and any kind of commercial coffee. Most coffees you'd find in the grocery store. Most coffees you find, actually all coffees you're going to find at a large chain fast food joint is not going to be specialty coffee. This is like coffee you have to get directly from a roaster, yeah. which is exactly what we're doing. That's so, what we're doing. So we love it. It's amazing. We're shipping Hazelmeyer Goods Coffee. Go to shoptheh.com. Get some coffee. Get some soap and sponges, sourdough kits. Listen, stocking and people buying stuff, y'all are great and awesome. It's a, it's a wild thing. And we are working ridiculously hard to make sure that y'all get your soap and your coffee mm-hmm. and your sourdough stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be so much more to come. By the time this episode hits, there might be even more products. My, most likely, yeah. On the site that I'm not even mentioning right now. So go to shoptheh.com and kind of skip skip the, uh, the, the the stress of walking in the grocery store and having to like read labels. We'll, we'll do that for you. So shoptheh.com, grab some of that stuff. And uh, you can find Hazemar Goods on Instagram at Hazelmeyer Goods. Mm-hmm. You can find Elizabeth at in- on Instagram. You can find me. You can find Homegrown. You can find Dr. Bill. We're all out there. And um, 
Till next time. That's a wrap.